Welcome to the Swamplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm Pete Moran. Of the We Love to Watch Podcast. Which I have not gotten to say I'm Pete Moran on that cadence in like three months now. I hope it <laughs> sounded natural. Now I'm picturing you babbling around your house just like, I'm Pete Moran. How am I not Pete Moran? <laughs> my my poor wife. Okay, so I had I had a baby, so Aaron and I stopped recording for a while. But like the thing that I and Aaron's been on the show before. He was recently on a lovely Frankenstein episode. And uh <laughs> like I, I didn't realize that my output for all of my insane nerd bullshit was on my co-host. And then my poor wife is listening to me talk tell her about I don't know, like a Czechoslovakian horror movie in the middle of October. <laughs> She's like, can you record again? So you have been babbling around the house. Oh, absolutely. You were, you were spot on. <laughs> you took me for a babbler and you took me right. You're a good judge of character. Yeah, I do question sometimes why I'm still podcasting and blogging. And I think that's exactly the answer is that I have a small group of people who are willing to listen to me babble about the... <laughs> Very specific subgenres of movies that I get excited about. Yeah, I, there's a recent episode where you mentioned, I think it was an anniversary episode, you mentioned that uh, CC did like a handful of episodes with you and then stopped. Um, I actually got my wife Molly to do like, I don't know, five or six of them. And then she was like, I never want to do something again. <laughs> I think the main issue with CC is that she is very factually accurate and really into research and like knows mm-hmm. what she's talking about before she says things. Whereas um, we're just kind of riffing <laughs> and uh, I kind of wave away the details and she could not stand how wrong I was uh, <laughs> frequently about facts. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I can see why that would be a problem. I am firmly in your camp here. Um, <laughs> you expect me to talk accurately for two hours. And uh, I guess today we're already discrediting ourselves, but we are diving into a very specific subgenre. I feel like we've really narrowed in on something that isn't widely covered. Maybe this will be the source text for future generations. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, so this isn't, I don't think this perfectly lines up, but uh, uh, to celebrate your, your anniversary, I did go back actually, and not your you and your wife's anniversary. Um, <laughs> I celebrated uh, the Swamp Flex anniversary by going back and listening to some old episodes that you referenced. And you also told me you had already done a previous Killer Doll episode, and I noticed it was the second episode you ever did. Um, is this going to be 102 or 103? What, 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 what number are we on? I believe this is 202. 202, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so kind of a strange kismet there. Um, we can say episode 2 and episode 202 are the most valid sources of information in the field of killer dolls. <laughs> Anything we say is 100% accurate, and it can be studied for future generations. Okay, that episode is notorious among us, among the three people who make this show uh, from the <laughs> beginning, uh, me, Brittany, and James, because it was like a great example of what not to do, which was we picked a genre, which was any movie about killer dolls, and then we each tried to watch as many as we could find. And there are literally hundreds. And within like a two week span, we had driven ourselves mad trying to cram <laughs> killer doll movies into our brain. And yeah. then today <laughs> we are repeating the sin. <laughs> so, okay. One thing I'll say is uh, you guys have the right attitude from the beginning. Someone who's listened to a lot of bad movie podcasts, which is you're enthusiastic. 
you care about the subject material, and you're actually, you have some chemistry with, with each other, that it, that puts you uh, head and shoulders above most podcasts. Um, yes, the one, my one regret about recording all, all of this is that I made a list, and it was a, of reasonable length, I would say, and we agreed on a reasonable number of entries. And then I think there was, like, wires crossed, and also I got so excited about this topic, I would not stop fucking messaging you. Uh, apologies <laughs> for that. Oh, it's been a blast. I get so I get so uh, obsessive that I just kept adding shit to the letterbox list because I was like, oh, I'll watch this, but I, I don't necessarily want to make Brandon watch this. And then I noticed that you were using the list as a marker, and I was like, oh, this is just a beast with a thousand mouths. Like, we're... <laughs> <laughs> this thing will never be fed. It's good, though, because, like, I, I'm very excited to talk to you and Aaron, and we don't get to do it very often. No. And Aaron was just on for our guests, our Halloween special. I guess this is our Christmas special. So y'all are like working the holiday circuit right now. <laughs> and I offered to him like, Hey, any movie or like small set of movies you want to talk about, you know, as long as we haven't covered it before, it's like your choice. And then we ended up watching over 10, maybe a dozen movies about Frankenstein. And it was like a month long research project where I fell into the labyrinth of watching every bonus feature on like the universal box set of monster movies, trying to learn more about Frankenstein and watched all the sequels and a few of its like remakes later on. And y'all usually tackle a single topic like this. And we love to watch by like stretching it out over a month. Mm -hmm. The only reason it feels um, intense and like overboard is because we're kind of cramming it into one conversation. Yes. Yes. Though I will say, the the episode is lovely. Um, as I as I said, you by by doing a Spooktober and a Christmas season episode, which we've also done a previous Christmas season episode with the uh, Black Christmas. We did the three Black Christmas movies, um, which we we liked all of them. Um, it's a good episode. I think it's from three years ago. Um, we you caught us at our most obsessive film watching windows of the year, which is when we're watching truly as many horror movies as we can get in and then uh, a little different than you brandon uh aaron and i also try and watch many many christmas movies from various genres and try and get like you know the analogy that both of us use is like candy sick or you know like you eat, <laughs> you eat so much of a good thing it turns into a bad thing um on christmas movies and this really allowed me to thanksgiving weekend turn into a bit of a nut job and like when we started i think we were like okay I really want to talk about Gremlins, and I want to talk about all the Gremlin ripoffs. But honestly, a lot of Gremlin ripoffs happened, but almost none of them picked up on the Christmas theme. They there's Ghoulies, there's Munchies, there's Critters, there's Hobgoblins, there's the Gate. There's there's so many little uh, little mischievous bastards that cause chaos, and they have to have sort of like almost an Evil Dead, a cartoonish version of an Evil Dead demon, like. They, they need to be, like, hedonistically excited about chaos. and They're not just, like, little guys that suck. <laughs> they're little guys that love chaos and, and sowing discord. And I was like, oh, but there's also one that's, like, the it seems like a perfect Swamp Flicks movie, which is Elves, which is currently, I believe, only on VHS and uh, crummy transfers of that VHS on YouTube. And I was like, oh, this is, this is a Swamp Flicks-ass movie, Elves. Let's do, let's do that. And, like, then as we talked, we were like, okay, like, killer toys? 
as we're talking about little little mischievous guys around Christmas time, killer toys really overwhelmed our brain because like there are so many killer toys, killer cookies, killer Christmas uh, icons um, of of a diminutive stature, and there's like not that many. Other than that, it's mostly killer Santas in the genre or killer Krampus in the genre, you know. And I guess that's a gray area too, where like a lot of the toys in these movies are like demonically possessed uh, and kind of in that Chucky way, like become organic material. Yeah. Yeah. Even though they were created by man. Uh, So (laughs) um, there's definitely like a gray area. And yeah, if we really wanted to narrow it down to miniature killers in the Christmas season, we could have just gone with like just goblins, aliens, creatures of the flesh. But uh, I think we were, appropriately thorough because as we were doing research for this it was very hard to come up with titles and (laughs) kind of surprising how few examples there were outside the few that we found on like the first two days and in an example okay so like and some of them are most assuredly most assuredly were marketed and are identified on wikipedia and yada yada as christmas movies however um have like almost none of the iconography except for a ginger dead man. I'm specifically referring <laughs> to the ginger dead man, which I believe is they're making gingerbread cookies. It must be the holiday season. However, no one's wearing a Santa hat. Like there's no little elves running around. Like there's, there's basically, I don't, I don't know if anybody even references the holiday. Like there are movies that are identified as Christmas, you know, Christmas horror movies that like basically have one specific thing. Um, that's kind of it. It's just, the gingerbread men are there. Okay, the ginger dead man inclusion was my fault. No, no, no. It's literally on Wikipedia listed as a holiday Christmas movie. Because when else do you eat them? When else do you eat? You're, you're chowing down on a gingerbread cookie in February? <laughs> are you broken inside? <laughs> Were you in a Siberian prison for a while and you don't know what year it is? I, I, I don't get it. No, but the, I am glad that we got Gingerbread, the Gingerbread Man movie in. I'm also glad that we got another Charles Band production in. And then I threw a bonus bit of research in, but it does not count towards our list today in that I watched Demonic Toys. So I was like, I wish to learn the, the background of these Demonic Toys before I see them fight the Puppet Master. <laughs> uh, and the unfortunate thing is that Demonic Toys is like, three times four times better than demonic toys versus puppet master and gingerbread man or ginger dead man uh those two movies are horrible i'm I'm excited to talk about charles band however yeah you cannot talk about miniature killer objects or miniature killer like goblins without talking about charles band he loves tiny things that kill like that is a fixation he's built his entire career on what blew my mind doing research for this is how few of those movies have anything to do with Christmas when it seems like <laughs> that is just up for grabs uh, and like fits right inside his whole deal, you know? But it feels like he would take any hook because he is like, he makes he makes Lloyd Kaufman look like a, a, a stand-up citizen with, with artistic <laughs> integrity, right? Like, he makes so many movies a year that are just like, we have a poster and we have one b-list or c-list or d-list star and let's go and if we don't have that star we have uh, we're referencing a franchise that you probably saw on video store shelves 20 years ago right um 
cashing in on some version of fame. I think their biggest headline maker recently is they're doing a Barbenheimer movie, uh, just making a movie based on the title of a meme. I Jesus don't think they Christ. know what they're doing with that title. They just know that <laughs> it'll instantly get clicks. I think you're gonna stop to they do they not know what they're doing? Um, <laughs> because because yeah, they are truly like the the, the house that while, while we're talking about um, full moon features. Um, they are the, you know, the um, exploitation house that I think their decline is like kind of bums me out because in the 80s, there were movies like Tourist Trap and like movies I didn't like love, but like an original kind of beast. And like they were clearly made with some sense of love and purpose and they look like a movie like Demonic Toys looks like a movie. It has some great kills. It literally has stop motion animation in it. Like. There's there's like a nutcracker guy who fights off one of the demonic toys. Like that takes time and love and care. You throwing together stop motion animation is not as easy as just making a little puppet and flopping it around in your hand, right? And like now I feel like they're chasing that that exploitation um that they're chasing other exploitation houses, right? They're 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 making like killer shark movies and shit. They're making meme movies. They're making movies that are intended for you to be like at Redbox, and you're like, well, while I'm here getting a real movie, I'll get this piece of shit for thirty cents a night or whatever the fuck. So yeah, I I find the current state of Full Moon features fairly grim, even as someone who you know, I think I like four of their movies. I think that four is about it. I'm a fan of the brand yes. more than I am a fan of like individual titles. And I yeah. think it's just like the decades of hitting the same notes with the tiny toys and with his idiot brothers, like dinky keyboard music, like <laughs> amuses me every time. <laughs> it, does, it does sound like someone is just thwacking their testicles against a Casio. It is <laughs> there. <laughs> there are, there are times where I'm like, are you just playing an old score in reverse? Is that is that what you're doing? I watched one uh, this Halloween season called Head of the Family. That was very literal. Like it was about a family that was led by a gigantic head. <laughs> and the score on that one was Richard Band just going ape shit with like not only the Casio stuff, but also just throwing in like mouth harps and like vibra slaps and um, just every doohickey he could find in the studio. Really virtuosic work from him, if you're interested in his <laughs> compositions. That's uh, a real um, a band practice has ended and your mom forgot to pick you up energy. <laughs> yeah. But Charles, I think when I say he's like fixated on the Tiny Killers concept, I don't think he's actually interested in making movies like a feature length story is not really his main concern. I think it really no. is. Just the animation of these little tiny dolls and goblins. And uh, it shows in the work. But like when the little toys are moving in stop motion, I, I can't help but smile. It, it yeah, brings I, me joy every time. I think that's precisely bringing us back up to kind of satellite level. I think that's precisely one of the reasons that this theme appeals to me. Is that the, the little guys aspect of it is so important. We have gremlins that kicked off this wave, and I'm not saying the f they're the first ones to go small, but, you know, they went small in a big way. Uh, gremlins is notable in that, like, people are obsessed with, like, the vibe of the lady gremlin, Gremelda or something. Like, people are obsessed with, like, the look and find the ugly gremlins, like, 
charming and cute. And they also are obsessed with Mogwai and uh, Gizmo specifically um, in their pre pre monstrous state and his adorableness so much that like ripping off Gizmo made the international sensation of Furbies happen. <laughs> like um, Joe Dante apparently got a and Steven Spielberg and the rest of those 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 people got apparently got a chunk of money from the the people that own Furby because it was just like undeniable in court that it was a ripoff. But the cuteness here is is very telling. And a cuteness, I think, that is very Swamp Flixy, which is like, sure, Gizmo is cute in a way that like literally everybody on the planet could go aw. But like the little like little oopsie daisy killer doll, like these weird little dumb puppets, <laughs> like the the naked little Nosferatus of elves, like they're kind of adorable in a very specific grody way that I think is very Swamp Flicks appropriate. Yeah, usually when people say that a movie is like a shut your brain off movie, they mean like, you know, just sort of lower your standards and you know, sort of drift through it and enjoy the dumb fun. These are like the Charles Band ones in particular are like um, shut your brain off movies. And like you really want to go into a fugue state in between the effects shots. Like <laughs> anytime human characters are talking and there's no killer doll in sight, you really just don't even want to be inside your own brain. You should make a device that shocks you when the puppets are coming on screen yes. <laughs> <laughs> and slowly feeds you ambient when they're not like wake you up, put you down, wake you up, put you down the entire movie. Also, a quick note on the Furby issue. Uh, another thing that happened when we were doing research for this is I kept gaslighting myself and like imagining movies about small killers mm -hmm. that I have seen and know like fairly well as being set during Christmas. So like we saw Megan, what, like the first week of the year is when that came out. I was like, mm -hmm. surely that's a Christmas movie. It's about a little girl getting a doll and there's like toy commercials for these like Furby knockoffs. Like that's gotta be a Christmas movie. Uh, and it's absolutely not. <laughs> and there were like so many Wikipedia pages. I was um, control F searching for the word Christmas on uh, as we were like gathering titles for this conversation that uh, I just kept striking out. It was really surprising how few movies fit the criteria. I think um, her, the, the lead woman's uh, obsession with getting Megan in on time, it has to do with like an asshole boss promising a corporate board that they'll have it by June 1st or something. Like there's some, oh, they need it by like the Q2 stakeholder meeting or something like I also gaslit myself into thinking that was a Christmas movie. And then also notably, we talked about this, is that Chucky is not, uh, there's no Chucky Christmas entry, despite the fact that he is literally given as a toy to a kid. I think it's for his birthday or something. While it's snowing. A lot of it's snowing. Literally, the first one takes place in Chicago and some of the subsequent ones also take place in the Midwest. Like, I think Seed of Chucky has one sequence where they kill Santa. It also helps with the gaslighting. Which is a movie within a movie. It's not like yes. the actual story. It's like on a film set in, in Hollywood. Yes. Chucky does not canonically kill Santa. That feels <laughs> wrong. Like, Ch Chucky does kill Santa, right? Like Maybe on the TV show. Who knows? Yeah, maybe on the TV show he finally, he finally gets to make it canon. You know what does happen in the 2019 one? One of the best kills involves a lawnmower... And Chucky stringing up a victim with Christmas lights. However, the 2019 Child's Play remake is not a Christmas movie. Wait, so they're just like Christmas lights that are in the garage or whatever? 
I mean, maybe one version of the script early on changed it from Andy's birthday to a Christmas present instead, which totally makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. they changed everything about that, like just fine and replaced the word Christmas with birthday. But the kill with the Christmas lights was just too good to let go, you know? Yeah. Okay. So here's here's uh, here's my uh, sort of thematic connection and why it feels so wrong to me that so many of these movies are set during like the summer or whatever, or just vague winter, is that I think that a killer toy is like the absolute perfect and, and Gremlins is essentially like a great argument for this, but like a killer toy is the absolute perfect balm to both people that love Christmas but have their their gripes like I think that's everyone uh and people that hate Christmas um and really are sick of seeing that iconography which is everyone else um and I think you and I are probably on on different sides of that coin but I think that these horror movies set at Christmas are a perfect perfect balm to the season because the cuteness and the tweeness and the cloying sweetness of a Chucky doll or um, a Mogwai or one of these killer dolls balanced against the horrible, horrible things they do, I think is like a perfect encapsulation of the problems with the Christmas year, the season, right? Like we take nice things like giving a present to somebody and we make it this obsessive, weird competition, this, this, this awful death march duty that we have to fulfill and we have this like list that we have to check off every year and um you have to make sure that you're like spending within an appropriate range of somebody so you don't offend them by spending too much or too little and how much are you engaging in putting up decorations like is your are you putting up a thousand decorations and breaking your back and falling off your roof are you putting one or two things up and getting judged for it like there's this the holiday really quickly turns around on you and, and bites you. And I feel like that's perfect for a little gremlin, right? Like um, the consumerism of the holiday is is painful. The uh, eating too much candy and feeling sick afterwards is painful. We're excited to see our family, but then we remember the things about our family that makes us only see them once or twice a year, right? It's this this sweet promise that, you know, you're you're gonna get this present and then all the work to get there or the um, moment after uh, you're kind of feeling empty because we've kind of made take, taken something that's beautiful and nice um, the season of giving and charity. And we've kind of made it into this, you know, <laughs> grody little death march. And I love Christmas and I try every year to be thoughtful about how I engage with it. And like, what am I doing? What what traditions am I serving versus what traditions are serving me? Um, and do an assessment every year and, and, and get rid of the stuff that's no longer making me happy. But like little crazy guys that run around killing people at Christmas time, like what's supposed to be the happiest time of the year, but is actually a very hard time for people, I think is perfect. Um, I have no particular strong emotional feeling about uh, the middle of April uh, the way that I do about, uh, you know, from Thanksgiving to Christmas. Do you know what's really strange about that trope of like the tools of commercialism like turning back on us uh from their little gift boxes mm -hmm. is that santa claus comes out unscathed uh in multiple movies we're going to talk about today santa claus <laughs> represents like the true meaning of christmas but he like brings those toys to your house <laughs> like yeah the commercialism you know is the demon 
But Santa Claus is still like this like angelic hero that represents the spirit of the holiday in this like very positive way. <laughs> there's 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 a lot of um you know uh well well I brought you love and joy and you fucked right. it up. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of like blame throwing, which I really respect as a former Catholic. You know, the idea that you can have something nice, but only if it comes with a lot of uh, guilt and regret. Like That one sticks with me, too. <laughs> I do want to go back to Charles Band real quick. Of course, because, of course. I mean, he, he owns this genre for me in my mind. Even though Joe Dante, like, perfected it. This is, like, Charles Band's territory. Yeah. I think he hates Christmas more than I do. <laughs> he can't even muster the strength to, like, subvert the holiday. He can't even, he'll just be like, uh, yeah, uh, I went to Menards and I spent uh, $50 on Christmas lights in the scene and now this character is wearing a Christmas hat. Is that enough for you to get you to rent my movie from Blockbuster? You fucking nerds. He avoids the holiday so deliberately that it's unignorable. Like, why is Demonic Toys set on Halloween night? It's about evil toys coming to life what does it have to do with halloween <laughs> even okay what if it was about rejected toys after christmas like right toys that people returned because they didn't want them or something right like there's at least some thematic association somebody m is making a movie about killer toys and nobody during the process is like well when do people get toys and when he does finally direct a christmas movie ostensibly that has a tiny killer in it it's in 2005, like decades into his career, and he doesn't make any mention of Christmas at all whatsoever. And that's the Ginger Dead Man. Yeah, and that's the Ginger Dead Man, where, like, I, I would be hard-pressed to point out a second thing about the movie that's Christmassy, except for the fact that the Ginger Dead Man is the Ginger Dead Man. And then, one final point, the other full moon movie you did find that was actually set on Christmas... Band did not produce it under his full moon label where he produces all of his stuff. <laughs> it was something he like sublet out to the sci-fi channel. Yes. <laughs> like he does not really have his hands on it except as like a, you know, a producer credit because it's his um, company's characters that he's licensing out. I Super said he has bizarre. No artistic integrity. Maybe that's his artistic integrity is that he, he just, <laughs> he won't make a, a Christmas exploitation movie. I almost expect there's like a banner over his desk at Full Moon headquarters that says no Christmas in like giant red letters. <laughs> Do you think someone needs to Ebenezer Scrooge him and then he'll <laughs> only make Christmas movies for the rest of his life? I'll watch that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything has to be a Christmas movie at that point. Uh, it is funny when you when you go on like Wikipedia, there's like a list of holiday horror movies and it'll say this movie takes place on this holiday, whatever. It's not just Christmas. And you go down the list, and, like, I've seen, I think between, whatever, 1945 and 2000, I think I've seen almost every one of them uh, for wow. Christmas. For Christmas. And then post-2000 is just a fucking war zone. It is, there are so <laughs> many Krampus movies. Whenever I tell people, like, I was like, oh, well, Krampus is, like, a really fun, you know... Uh, the Michael Michael Doherty one the, this is a really fun um, sort of uh, really mean spirited Christmas horror movie. Some really great practical effects. You know, kind of reminds me of Gremlins. Like you should check it out. People are like, oh, I've seen I've seen Krampus. That movie sucked so bad. And then I'll be like, w which one are you talking about? And there's like four of them that are just called Krampus because the figure is public domain, right? 
Um, there are so, so many of these shitty movies post-2000, and, like, I'm not going to watch all of them. I'm not going to watch Nutcracker Massacre. I'm sorry. Oh, wait. I, I did some investigating on that today. Okay. One of the movies that was on the list briefly was Nutcracker Massacre. Mm-hmm. Insanely, it is not a miniature killer Christmas movie. <laughs> the Nutcracker who does the massacre is human-sized, and it's like a spiritually possessed slasher where this wooden man the size of an adult man but looks like a nutcracker kills people. I have but one simple question that everyone is thinking. <laughs> How big are the Nazis cracking? That was the one um, positive note I saw in Letterboxd. Nobody likes that movie whatsoever, except someone did celebrate that the nutcracker does literally crack someone's nuts. So <laughs> it does happen. <laughs> I think I, I think I've seen like a cl- a killer clown movie called Stitches where I was like I truly remember nothing about the movie except for that someone gets their nuts cut off by a clown. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> like it is it is for some reason it just sticks in your mind, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I I my point my point on all these these exploitation movies, these straight to video exploitation movies uh, in particular that came out post two thousand is there's so many that are Christmas themed. But uh, Charles Band just just steered away from that. Um, I I also want to talk about Killer Dolls a little bit because um, I I think it's a a fervent subject. And I would love to come back and do a different set of Killer Doll movies because there's a lot of them that are actually like really good. Yeah, I love the genre. The sh- the genre is great. Yeah. Um, I know you've cov- you've at least written about a bunch of the Chucky movies and you've covered Megan and, and yeah. We even are getting modern good examples, which is not true of every genre. But like, to me, there's a question, there's like an open question. It's like, why, why are there so many killer doll movies? Why are we so afraid of killer dolls? Why are there like four Annabelle movies that all have made like 17 times their budget? All awful. too. I, I, I watched the two that are supposed to be the quote unquote good ones and they all suck. They're so boring. How are you going to make four killer doll movies where the doll does not move? I, I insulting. Dude, I like the Conjuring, the first two Conjuring movies, and they were wise to be like Annabelle is a eight minute part of this movie. Well, that's the thing about the ones that are supposed to be good too. The ones that are supposed to be good, like she actually still doesn't do anything. They just added more monsters into the story to like fill out the time. So like, there's one where she's in a basement with other creepy things that come alive and like fuck with people. <laughs> And she's just there. They actually run into this problem in the um, new Goosebumps movies, where Slappy, the the ventriloquist doll, they're like, well, <laughs> Slappy is like the face of Goosebumps and like the voice of Goosebumps. But like, uh, how is a ventriloquist dummy going to harm you? And the answer is he will use ma- some other monsters. He will manipulate other monsters right. to hurt you. He, they're they're uh, they're agents of chaos. At which point I, I beg to differ. Why why is it not just a guy? Why is it not just a wizard? Why do I have to stare <laughs> at an inanimate doll that, by the way, does not even look like the real Annabelle? Right. Because uh, it was a it was a Raggedy Ann, right? It's such a creepy doll to the point where it's like, um, I don't know, what are we doing here? Was this marketed as a demon doll? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> This doll got an image consultant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This, this doll has gone through the marketing process. Um, yeah. So killer dolls, like in my mind, like the power of like a killer doll goes back to like we literally like 
anthropologists have found dolls or some version of like crude carvings that like were intended for children like thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago like we've been finding some version of, of dolls and small icons that don't have like religious totemic power um for a long time uh for most of our history as a species but like obviously also we worship idols in our history um but kids Specifically, with their toys that are intended to be toys and are given to them as toys and their parents are fine with them having, like, kids imbue them with this creepy anthropomorphic power and they give it a name, right? Like, the first thing a kid does when you give them a, a doll is, like, they either the doll either came with a name, like an American Girl doll, or the child's immediately like, this is obviously Stacy. Like, I don't know. I don't know what name <laughs> is on the tag, but this is obviously Stacy. And, like, the way that kids just immediately anthropomorphize their dolls is creepy. Um, it's it's it, the child immediately puts a spirit into a doll, and like I think I, I my my child is two months old, but I have a eight nieces and nephews, and a common story is so many of them have had baby dolls or American Girl dolls or whatever. If they leave them in the car, they think they left them on the train or whatever. It's a fucking emergency like they left a family member behind. They're screaming. They're so uncomfortable. Like, there's there's no calming them down until you have, you fix that situation somehow. Um, and it can be genuinely traumatic for a kid to, like, lose their lovey or whatever, right? Like, because they put so, so much into these. And, like, it's basically a new family member. And so, like, killer dolls as a as a genre, especially when it's associated with a kid, is so perfect. Because, like, it's not that you just, like, dropped a demon off at a kid's house and he's like, I'm gonna fucking kill you. The kid loves the demon for a while. And the kid is giving that demon some power. And the demon, in some sense, wouldn't exist without this kid to love it. So, like... That, I mean, that's a big part of Megan. So the best parts of Megan, in my opinion, is is, yeah. is is how they explore that relationship. But, like, the reason Killer Dolls is such a, a fervent topic is because, like, literally every day some kid gets a doll that they're going to be, like, they can think about for the rest of their life and will have some sort of totemic power. And I think that's really cool. I think that's, like, um, one of the reasons Chucky, like, the first Child's Play, is one of the better examples of the genre that like always immediately comes to mind is because there's so many little private conversations where he's whispering back and forth with the doll yeah and then it just starts getting creepy like the types of information chucky's feeding back to him oh yeah but yeah that private back and forth where the kid is like imprinting um and then receiving answers uh can be very creepy and there's maybe only one movie on our list today that actually does something with that concept in a satisfying way so that's something to keep an eye on. Yeah. Another thing I want to keep an eye on is uh, I'm coming up with a binary in my mind as we're doing this, like, sort of, like you said, satellite view of the genre. Um, I think there might be a binary where, like, each one of these movies is either a Gremlins movie or a Charles Band movie. And I'm not talking <laughs> about specifically Gremlins and Ginger Dead Man. I'm talking about, like, things that came after them specifically. I, either ripping one off or taking inspiration from the other. Uh, not even yeah. shamelessly, just from like a real place of adoration. Like I grew up watching 
Gremlins or I grew up watching full moon movies. I'm going to make my version of that and make it as best as I could. And uh, in the case of Charles Band, often surpassing the amount of care that he put in his own productions. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I think that's the best way to bifurcate things here because it's not just killer toys versus Gremlins. It's like Gremlins versus like a Charles Band production and like who were the descendants of that. Uh, I'm really glad that we got to throw in Toys of Terror today as well, even though it's not like, you know, going to be a perennial Christmas classic for me, because I think it is really important as a sort of stitching point between what we expect out of like a indie horror movie now, especially in the age of Shudder and like even Netflix, like even some of the like straight to Netflix stuff is like better than a lot of the random video store crap I rented growing up. Um, depending on what era that video store crap was made in, obviously. Um, but Toys of Terror is, like, such an interesting kind of nexus point between, like, somebody who's making a movie for the love of a specific type of genre and, like, is willing to make actual stop-motion animation models of a bunch of toys and be very thoughtful about which type of toys are selected for this. Versus, versus, um... I, uh, you know, I've been making killer toy movies for for 40 years, and you're going to fucking, enough people are going to rent this thing that I'm going to make my nut on it. Like, <laughs> um, those are two, those are two kind of different impulses, right? The one that loves, the one that loves and, and worships a thing and wants to pay fealty to it, and the one that's like, ah, yeah, man, like, I got two kids in college, I'm going to need you to, I'm going to need you to see uh, Ginger Dead Man versus Evil Bong. Well, Toys of Terror, like you're saying, is very clearly a Charles Band movie um, in the sense of the binary. Um, yes. We're probably going to end there, but let's start with a Gremlins movie in Elves. Action International Pictures presents the gruesome holiday shocker. Elves. They're not working for Santa anymore. Their mission to mate with a virgin and conquer the world as a pint-sized master race. I'm saving it for someone special. Santa must expose this unholy force before the elves destroy Christmas. So, Brandon, I wanted to talk about the movie Elves with you. I think one of the most obvious um, Gremlins uh, rip-offs, um, but it also feels a little bit like a Ghoulies rip-off. I'm sure that's not intentional, um, because it involves the occult and you actually like raise uh an elf from the the earth in some sort of like a you know a ceremonial fashion uh the best way to remember i think the difference between a gremlin an elf a munchie a hobgoblin a critter and a ghoulie is how they came to be and unfortunately elves are a type of ghoulie in my mind not a type of gremlin, but for the purposes of today, I'll, I'll call an alpha gremlin. The copy of a copy, though, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think Elves is ripping off ghoulies. I think it's very specifically doing a gremlin's riff. I mean, quite literally, uh, the smallest child in the film calls the elf a ninja gremlin multiple times. <laughs> I forgot about that. He's a little man, like a midget, like a gremlin, a little midget troll. <laughs> Okay, so I guess there's 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 a troll connection as well. I, I I hadn't considered that. I'll be sure to take my research forward the next time next time we do one of these episodes. Um, but yeah, I wanted to watch Elves with you. Unfortunately, timing wise, um, it has not been brought to the Criterion 
channel and restored in 4K yet. Um, any any week now. Uh, I do think that now that we've watched on VHS, it does mean that like like Severin or Scream Factory is going to get the rights to transfer it like next week. I think that's that's generally how my luck works. I have to assume the reason that has not happened is because there's some sort of rights issue because this is the exact kind of schlock that gets the 4K Blu-ray treatment like on a weekly basis right now. It doesn't make yeah. any sense that it's only on YouTube. Yeah, I was just talking to you about how Spider Labyrinth just got a beautiful, beautiful Severin 4K director's cut, whatever. And uh, that is, uh, you know, that's a movie that was only on VHS for a while. Like, this happens. You're right. Like, truly every week one of these movies gets uh, unearthed and, and loved on in a way that, like, is, it seems a little insane. But let me run through the plot. Um, we're introduced. Uh, I was so I was so happy when this happened because I was like, "This is, <laughs> I can I I could see you smiling even though you weren't here uh, in, in an almost demonic way." The sisters <laughs> of Anti Christmas. Fuck yeah! <laughs> a, a group of a, a coven, a group of witches, is uh, trying to do a a, a ritual um, on uh, you know leading up to Christmas. Um, very much reminded me of Silent Night Deadly Night Initiation. <laughs> It's just like, oh, I guess this Christmas movie is about like a a lesbian coven, but um, unfortunately, uh, Nazi witches or warlocks enter the picture. But this is about a young girl who's in a um, coven and she's sort of messing around with rituals. Uh, They steal, she steals her grandpa's, more on that in a minute, um, like book of rituals back when he was a Nazi or worked with Nazis uh during the war and uh when when she goes home uh her home situation is dire it's not not ideal um she has a uh grandpa who is uh lecherous and gross and very abusive um and also again a nazi warlock um we'll find more about that later (laughs) uh a pervy little brother who who peeks on her when she's like showering and changing and he honestly i i I, this is another swamp flicks moment he when he's talking about being like a gross little pervert and being proud of it he has the same cadence as divine oh yeah (laughs) it's like a braying donkey like proud of how disgusting he is (laughs) it's amazing (laughs) <laughs> he's, he's like a perfect little shit there's unrepentant and then at some point in the movie they just turn him into like a normal little boy it's like that that doesn't come back up he doesn't like join the elf army or something right um and uh at one point the, the woman says i'm a living cliche it's like no you're not none of this is normal <laughs> please get out of this situation um her mom drowns her cat uh agamemnon <laughs> And uh, I did think that when I was watching this movie, I was like, especially during this first part, I was like, it is sometimes nice when you're watching a movie if monsters have something of value to destroy. Um, this home life is... I, I'm not particularly worried about this home life uh, being uh, tossed asunder. Um, then enters a guy, Dan Haggerty, which we'll have to pause there. Dan Haggerty, who was an easy rider, sure. Sure, he was an easy rider, but Dan Haggerty played Grizzly, <laughs> Grizzly Adams on television and became like a meme uh, for being like an animal. It's like if Ron Swan were, were a conservationist, Ron Swanson was like a conservationist, like a guy who lives out in the woods and has a big beard and is all about living on the land, um, but is also like, you know, radical independent guy, but also like is friends with grizzly bears. 
Yeah, it's like a Jeremiah Johnson yeah. type, right? Okay, here's my thing about him in this movie real quick. He's in a different film than everyone else, right? He is. He absolutely is. Everyone is... Every scene features, like, despicable adult behavior that is, like, more grotesque and monstrous than the scene before it. Like, just constant reveals of how awful people could be to each other, just getting worse and worse by the minute. Except for Dan Haggerty, who is, like, this muscly sweetheart with only joy in his heart, no, mo- no money in his pocket, nothing to, like, stand on in the world, but still happy and cheerful and, like, wondering why no one else is uh, being nice on this Christmas where uh, Nazis are running around ruining the holiday with dark <laughs> magic rituals. He is so charismatically sad in this movie. Like, he is basically like a Merle Haggard song about, like, well, my... Um, the, the, the ex has the kids this year, so I guess I'm I'm driving a truck to Spokane. Um, like he is such a he is such like a working class like you know hand to mouth like sympathetic sweetie who just wants everyone to be safe. And you're right, truly, there's not a single rational adult in the movie outside of him. Everyone right. else is like a Nazi or a brutal capitalist or just kind of a sex freak. He's definitely in like an action movie and not in a horror film. I think that's like he's it's almost like a genre difference. The only character I can really compare him to is um the lead in Halloween 3 season of the witch. Uh he's also in Night of the Creeps. I, his name's not coming to me. Oh, Tom um, Atkins. Yeah, like Tom Atkins in Halloween 3 is on this like investigative mission into the villainy. Yes. Um Dan Haggerty is also like trying to crack the case but no matter how much research he does into the nazi occult uh he never really feels like he enters like a horror realm he's really (laughs) just like this nice guy who's gonna save the day with muscles and bullets i really wish i had written lines down from this movie but i was i I did this on purpose to save us time um (laughs) but he he refers to himself he's like he's like well you know, you have to remember, you're not a cop anymore. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he says this out loud. He does a lot of, like, sad talking to himself. Anyways, he's hired as a mall Santa at the worst mall in the world. Um, <laughs> the girl's being pursued because the world, the girl uh, dabbled in um, the uh, ritual arts and raised elves from the earth, which we're finding out because the elves are starting to stalk people at this mall and throughout the rest of the movie. The elves are weirdly a periphery character compared to the Nazis until very close to the end. And at this mall, oh, uh, one of the little dudes, we have to note every kill that is is specifically for, you know, the little guys. Um, The little dudes are just down on the ground and they use weapons largely. That is so funny to me every time. It's so funny. They they use knives. They eat fingies. Um, there's a bathtub kill where they electrocute somebody. Like they're really using their size to their their detriment. And there's a moment when um, one of the mall Santas, um, and this is how uh, Dan Haggerty gets his job. It's how Grizzly Adams gets his job. One of the mall Santas is about to do blow in the back room, and he gets stabbed in the dick by an elf. Incredible. It's so perfect. One of my favorite things. Like, my favorite tropes in the world, I think, is when there is already a monster, like this unfathomable being, like beyond human comprehension, and then they give it a gun. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> for some reason, that is so funny. 
like this creature, this ancient creature that has like generally eaten human blood in ten different ages, has like eaten Viking blood, and then he comes, <laughs> he comes to 1987, and he's like, he's like, oh, would be great. <laughs> and in this one, they get a little silly with it. Like for some reason, the elf dresses like a uh, in a Santa hat yes. and like wields a like straight razor for some reason. Yeah, he has. He loves knives. Um, and and like I said earlier, they are they look like little baby Nosferatu's. Um, yeah, they're nude little vampiric kind of looking dudes. Like it's all the mean of a gremlin, but it, it um it doesn't necessarily have the like ain't I a stinker inventiveness. Like this is not a movie where they're gonna like hack uh, a woman's um lift chair. To make her fly so fast up the stairs that she flies out a window and dies attached to her lift chair. <laughs> like, they're not even going to fuck with the, the console. They're just going to go find a gun. That's the category of gremlin we're working with here. Well, I think it's like a... I think a lot of the issues with these movies as to, like, what is pulled off, like, the scope and, like, really delivering on the premise is an issue of just budget. And, like, these guys in particular are just not expressive. They're little rubber dolls that like do not articulate. They can't make faces. They just kind of like open slack jawed, like mouth breathe uh, before they shoot a gun or like slash you with a knife. You and they're upsetting looking. And they're trying to, you can see a hand or a jaw and they're trying to make the mouth articulate, but the rubber just will not abide. <laughs> yeah, the whole mouth, the whole face moves like a baseball mitt when they like try to <laughs> collapse it. Yes, it would be like trying to operate Kermit the Frog if you already had a baseball mitt on. That's, I think that's exactly, that's exactly what they are. I also can't underwrite how funny all of this is. Like, this is a movie that when it's, it's updated to 4K, it's going to be fantastic. Unfortunately, I don't really know what happens in the third act. What There's some stuff that happens leading up to that we'll discuss. But the third act on YouTube is like... I don't know, Match. I, I watched on, like, a 65-inch TV with, like, all the blinds drawn, and I, like, was sitting watching it. Like, I was watching, like, the Bin Laden raid, and I still cannot make out, like, what, like, what exactly is happening at the end, because they go to, like, a dark forest, and Dad Haggerty is, like, fighting guys in the woods and shit, or the the, the, the lead, our, our lead witch is fighting people in the woods. I think this movie's uh, glory will be revealed when it's restored. Um, because there's genuinely parts in the movie that I, I haven't seen yet. Yeah, usually when you say a movie's hard to see, it's not quite this literal. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But uh, it is kind of charming um, that the VHS that they recorded this off of keeps losing its track. Like, the VHS has already run down before it got it's uploaded to YouTube. Uh, I, 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 I love, okay, so some highlights, because we have, we have a lot to cover today. Um, the Mommy Dearest level momming. Oh, great. Um, Psycho just, Bitty. She is a hoot. <laughs> She's just treating her daughter like complete shit the entire movie. Her daughter, who like has a job and seems like a nice daughter, the mom one day, the daughter comes home like late or whatever, and the mom's like, Guess what? We closed your checking account and stole all your money. <laughs> Fucking insane. And it's not like she's like on drugs or something where you can be like, Oh, this this poor daughter. You're just like, wait, what else has she done? This is just like a Tuesday? This is just normal behavior. And then every detail they try to give to like justify the cruelty just makes the movie more and more unpleasant. Like, yeah. I mean, you mentioned like the anti-Christmas uh, witch society. 
The movie in general is just like anti-Christmas in that it's just deeply unpleasant <laughs> domestic behavior. The central family is so fucked up. Right. And I guess we should spoil what's going on. It's like the daughter is the result of incestuous rape from the grandfather. So like that's why her mother drowns her cat and steals her bank account and talks about how awful she is every time she sees her. The daughter's like looking for literal comfort. Like my friends have died at the hands of a murderous elf. Please hug me and console me. And the mom's like, you piece of shit. I hate you so much. <laughs> the mom is such a dick. And <laughs> she, yes, she, uh, it's, it's horrible. But like the mom also does this thing where finally she breaks and she's like, oh, you want to know where your dad is? You want to know where your dad is? He's in the den. And then the daughter, of course, goes, only grandpa's in the den. And she's like, He's the same person. <laughs> like, oh God. It's, it is, there's definitely some, you know, um, there's some John Waters, uh, most disgusting family in the world DNA here. It's just sad and not funny. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm excited for, uh, the day that we get to see more of, or of this movie, because I'm sure there's just line readings that are just completely fuzzed over by the tape. I very much enjoyed this as is though. Like as is. Yes. I had a blast. There's something about the limitations of these like cheaper little guy killer movies where like there's a lot of dead air to fill between the effect shots and like what they do with that time is like make or break because they can't afford to just constantly do stop motion or constantly do puppets like the amount of setups it's just way easier to have characters exchange dialogue than it is to have like constant killing. And this movie fills that time with like the most insane feverish narrative out of anything we watched. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. And also, like, I talk a lot about how I hate the research scenes in movies where they have to go to the library. I hate it in 99% of movies. Um, this one has one of my favorite library scenes because he's just going back to the origins of the elves and then eventually basically explains that they have nothing to do with Christmas elves. He's basically like, this isn't really a Christmas movie. And he, his, his origin goes back to Noah's Ark and then loops back through the Nazis. Like, none of it is chronological. <laughs> and all of this is happening on Christmas Eve. And someone's like, and then Grizzly Adams is like, where would I find the special, you know, expert on the occult? And he's like, well, it's Christmas Eve. He would be at home. And you're like, what the fuck are you doing here, man? Yeah, Just why are you waiting working? for Grizzly Adams to show up? <laughs> And and there's a line that Dan Haggerty says in this that made me laugh so hard. And this is this is sort of a button that I I don't know if we'll come back to it. He says something about like, what can you tell me between the Nazi connection? What can you tell me about the Nazi connection between the elves? It's like it's it's a great line. And the everything is terrible holiday special pulls clips from, I think, every movie except for Gremlins we're going to discuss. Wow. I, a, a lot of them, at least. Not Toys of Terror, because that came out after, but um, all of the ones, I guess, pre-Toys of Terror and after Gremlins. Now I feel under-researched. I should have thrown another one on the pile. No, no, no. This, <laughs> this is great, because now, <laughs> now when you watch that, you'll be like, oh my god, I know all these reference points. You are correct for selecting that one weird line from Silent Night, Deadly Night 5. I have to assume they used my favorite line from the film, uh, Elves, though, which is, uh, when there's no more room in hell, elves will walk the earth. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so that was funny. the line where I was like, does this movie know it's funny or not? I don't It know. definitely does. Okay. 
I think the library scene really does reveal it shows its 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 elfy hand a little bit. I mean, there's also that sitcom moment between the children where uh, the younger brother barges in. He's like, "What's wrong?" And the older sister has to go, "Gramps is a Nazi." <laughs> I hate that. I hate when that happens. <laughs> it's so relatable. I'll just say uh, before we move on that I love this one. Like this it is so fun. It is a nasty movie full of hateful people <laughs> and Dan Haggerty, who is a sweetheart. And I don't know when we talked last time when we did that Black Christmas episode, we all were like singling out our favorite Christmas horror movies, and I singled out. Um, initiation the fourth silent nine deadly night movie which you mentioned earlier and for the exact same reason it's just like such a perverse version of this where it's like you actually don't like christmas why did you make this movie (laughs) in this one it's like almost punishing people who were looking for some holiday uh novelty in their horror like you know i want to bridge the gap between my love of horror movies and my love of christmas this movie is deeply unpleasant um, in a very funny way. Uh, it would be nice to be able to see more than 30% of it with my eyes. <laughs> but uh, I, had a, I had a great time. Yeah, the goggles, they do nothing. It was Christmas Eve. I was nine years old. Me and Mom were were decorating the tree, waiting for Dad to come home from work. A couple hours went by. Dad wasn't home. Mom called the office. No answer. Christmas Day came and went, and still nothing. The police began a search. Four or five days went by. Neither one of us could eat or sleep. Everything was falling apart. It was snowing outside. The house was freezing, so I went to try to light up the fire. And that's when I noticed the smell. Firemen came and broke through the chimney top. And me and Mom were expecting them to pull out a dead cat or a bird. And instead, they pulled out my father. He was dressed in a Santa Claus suit. He'd been climbing down the chimney on Christmas Eve, his arms loaded with presents. He was going to surprise us. He slipped and broke his neck, died instantly. that's how I found out there was no Santa Claus. Well, I hope if you're playing along at home, you've been taking a shot every time we say gremlins. Because (laughs) without a doubt, like the genre starts there. It's like the Rosetta Stone of little guys who kill on Christmas. And I don't really feel the need to like recap what happens in that film. Um, it, It is a holiday classic. What I will say is someone who like you spends a lot of time watching sort of lower budget 
outsider art, sort of eccentric genre cinema. Over the years, I've gotten really used to thinking like, Gremlins is very good, but Gremlins 2, the new batch, is like the perfect version of that film and really blows up the whole premise and really lets loose. And then last Christmas, I was with a family member. It was like my brother-in-law's partner. And she and I were alone watching a Christmas movie. You know, sometimes you just get like alone in a room with someone you don't even know very well, but you're related to in an abstract way. Yeah, I feel like the 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 uh, the mark of Christmas is being in a room with somebody that you normally wouldn't hang out with, but you're like both watching Christmas with the Cranks on TBS, and neither of you will turn it off. <laughs> and she's a little younger than me, and she had never seen Gremlins. Oh, awesome! And the whole time she was laughing. And then apologizing for laughing and then getting scared when things got really violent. I was like, no, you, you don't have to apologize. You were doing this exactly correctly. Like <laughs> Joe Dante would love your reaction precisely. Right. Probably to the beat. A very funny horror comedy. All of the kills from the, the cute little gremlins that turn into nasty goblins are still really effective. I was surprised, I guess, after so many years of thinking of the new batch as like the perfected version of this first movie, like how well this movie holds up next to it. Um, and I felt a little foolish that I had been like dismissive and um, had taken for granted how great the first Gremlins film is. It is a perfect Christmas film. I think it's easy to do if you like the new batch at all, which I obviously love the new batch. It's great because the new batch spends a good amount of time making fun of the first movie and making you think the first movie is pokey which is a, quite a strategy. Uh, no wonder it didn't pay off for Joe Dante. <laughs> but uh, it spends a lot of time like teasing the first movie, and it feels like it's a movie that's for Gremlins diehards, but also people who hated Gremlins, right? It's like it has a, a strange um, Venn diagram of, of fans. Like the, it, it, it's easy to make you think like, oh, well, Gremlins was the thing, you know, he had to like please Spielberg. He had to keep changing the script from the original, risk, you know, rough and tumble Chris Columbus script. Um, <laughs> um, which is also very funny that Chris Columbus's script was mean and then Joe Don meaner and Joe Dante and Steven Spielberg had to be like, all right, Chris, like we're not going to kill Mogwai. I mean, it does have the one like uh, monologue from Phoebe Cates that is like one of the great anti-Christmas Christmas movie moments. Oh, it's great. Uh, that's when she recounts the time her father left on Christmas Eve and she thought he had abandoned the family and they find his dead rotting body in the chimney dressed as Santa Claus weeks later. Um, and that's why she hates the holiday. And she said, that's how I found out Santa isn't real. So fucked. I, I think that's as gross as most of the scenes in elves. And it's bizarre that it's in like a Steven Spielberg produced like family film. Is. Yeah. And Joe Dante had to fight for it. Um, Cause he was like, that's, that's the movie in a nutshell. He says is that this, feeling where you're not sure if you're allowed to have like a guilty laugh or if if um you're supposed to be like kind of disturbed and he's like that if i can have people feel that weird mix where you're not really sure how to feel like i i i've made my movie and that's what really makes the movie really sing for me is that it is it is both the sickly sweet christmas movie but it is also this mean just deconstruction of christmas as a holiday and I think that the reason that I like it so much, and, and that we can compare this to the second movie, because I think the second movie is, honestly, it's a movie in a different genre. Like, I think the second totally. movie is, is an anti-Hollywood satire, or an anti-entertainment industry satire. Maybe more anti-TV satire. 
And the first movie is its own genre. Like it came out the same day, the same weekend, excuse me, that uh, Ghostbusters came out. In June, by the way, if you did not know, this is a so summer bizarre. movie. It's so bizarre. Um, it's it's bizarre that neither of them was an October movie, to be honest. And even more bizarre that Gremlins didn't come out in November. But <laughs> so um, Gremlins created its own genre. Like people don't give it enough credit for like these this mix of tones and, and how like the studio and even Spielberg were panicking at times. Like, what the fuck are you doing? But Spielberg had already worked previously with Joe Dante and dug him. And was like, all right, like I, I'm in your corner, but like I am gonna tell you when I think you're you're off off the rails. And apparently, they stayed friends after making this, which is is good. But um, the bet paid off. Like this is a movie that the studio was tearing their hair out. Um, is it cost way more than it should have? Cost eleven million dollars, which is a, a lot in in that era uh, money for a movie about a bunch of little monsters. It uh, made its money back eventually like it made its money it's this movie was a hit it basically guaranteed a sequel but it's it exists in a completely different space than the sequel and the reason is because this movie creates i I talked about this with elves but i'll sort of bring it back it creates a world that's worth blowing up like I can't, like, Zach Gilligan and Phoebe Cates are adorable as a couple, and I want their dog to be okay. In the original Chris Columbus script, they killed the dog. Wild. I want the, I want everyone to be okay. I want, uh, these characters to survive. This town is an adorable, like, idyllic, but obviously artificial version of America, right? There's even, like, a fake version of Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life in in the, the, um, I forget the lady's name. I've seen this movie 9,000 times. There's an older woman who's like a crummy landlord and she's like the richest person in town, but also a huge dickhead. And so the movie has to take these careful steps to establish that you care about these characters before they throw their life upside down. And before they start making jokes at their expense. Like, the movie is not as cynical as one might assume from some of the later pieces because, like, the movie is like, hey, like, at the end of this, we want you to care what happens to Zach Gilligan and Phoebe Cates. And even in the sequel, they like still make them a couple, right? Um, it needs something to subvert. And Joe Dante is so good at doing both halves of those things that I, I find that most impressive. A real quick an- anecdote about it. Um, last year, I, I watched it with my nieces. Nine, I think there were nine and 13 at the time. Um, what I would, my brother and I would argue is the perfect age. Um, but heading into the 45 minute mark, both of them were terrified. Wow. (laughs) They were really scared. Um, and then they were having so much fun in the third act. And that's the weird thing about the movie is it feels like it's like stress testing a child a little bit because the middle portion of the movie, the beginning is really nice. The middle portion of the movie is the second act, let's say, is really intense and dark and shadowy. And the gremlins are just straight up murdering people all over town. That's when they go into like the xenomorph pods and then like there's like a classic monster movie segment where like they're being prodded at in like a science lab. Yes. They're like, what's going on in there? What's about to come out? And when they come out, it's horrible. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And then the third act, all the gremlins have revealed themselves to be kind of goofballs. And like if you're and then uh, Gizmo gets to save the day, like as a movie 
that is kind of a perfect structure for a kid because you're not ratcheting up the intensity until the credits roll. You're making kids feel good for being being brave enough to stay during the middle section of the movie. And I got to see that live last year with my nieces. Um, also, uh, yeah, you probably I feel bad for the people that brought a four year old to the theater. <laughs> yeah. Is this the movie they had to like reinvent the MPAA structure for? Yeah. Spielberg is responsible, basically. It's the it's this and um Temple of Doom is really what, what made them say That's why hey, we have we a PG thirteen. We need to have a PG thirteen. Which had positive and negative impacts, right? It created a market for um broad sweeping horror and broad sweeping comedies, but it also created this market where like there's a period of time where it was very hard to find a comedy or a horror movie that was willing to aim for adults. Um, so the PG-13 rating is a complex thing, but you know, this movie is definitely the perfect PG-13 movie. It should have been PG-13 to begin with. I guess what I had forgotten when I was like over, not over praising, but like praising the new batch over this one was that one is like all chaos all the time. Mm-hmm. And I had like remembered this movie as being very tame in comparison. And I had forgotten just how Looney Tunes that third act is that you were just describing. Like. Yeah. When the gremlins are drinking in the pub or like cutting it up at the movie theater, they are smoking cigarettes, shooting guns, swinging from the chandeliers. There's a flash dance spoof in the middle of it. It's just bits. Yeah. Like they're just doing little comedy routines. And it's so funny. It's so funny. My favorite piece in that, and it's stuff that like you don't notice when you're five, but I notice now. Um, I was someone who was shown this movie when I was like five. Um, we had it on Betamax. Um, is is that Phoebe Cates? Her way of surviving that situation is just to continue to be the bartender. <laughs> she, just continue, she just continues trying to pour them beers and bring them peanuts and shit. And tries to, and the way she finds out that they don't like light is because she's trying to light one of their cigarettes. <laughs> like, that is so, that is full on new batch lunacy. Is that like, her way of surviving this is not immediately running out. Her way of surviving this is being like, uh, well, I am at work, so. <laughs> That's capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, apparently they cut out a bunch of a bunch of plot lines. Like Judge Reinhold is like in this movie to be a dickhead for twenty minutes, not even twenty minutes. Sorry, let's say eight minutes, and then he's just not in the rest of the movie. Um, apparently, like the, a lot of the meanness of the movie was was kind of swapped out for zaniness at the end because Spielberg was like, "No, Gizmo doesn't die. Kids are gonna fucking love this thing." <laughs> Apparently people sell toys. Kind of hated it, but yeah, people are going to love this thing and we're going to sell so many toys. And then he made Gizmo the hero in the third act. And I feel like that's, I think it was the correct move. I will say one more thing to this movie's credit that none of these other movies can do. And it's because they have the Spielberg money behind them. And I feel like everything else we're talking about is like super cheap compared to Gremlins. So it's almost like unfair to even compare them just because of the production might behind this movie is so incomparable to the rest of the genre but the full frame close-ups on the actual gremlins like they fill the frame it's not just that they're tiny little things that are like stop motion animated in the distance sometimes they are that but there's also a lot of like full in especially now on hd like close-ups on the puppets well lit you see every detail this is not elves where you can't even squint to like get (laughs) any kind of like um detail out of that gray matter rubber puppet like if they show you if they show you like the shoulders and the head in the same shot like they were really proud of that shot right (laughs) that is a keeper yeah 
I'm just really impressed by how well those puppets look. A lot of stuff that was made in this era was not meant to hold up to the ultra 4K UHD restoration process that we give every piece of schlock now. Obviously, this is not schlock. This is major studio fare. But like, it's really incredibly detailed, thoughtful, well-made. Like The whole thing just looks great. Um, yeah, and it's a Christmas classic for a reason. It's a very good movie. It's a beautifully made movie. The Jerry Goldsmith score is a part, big part of the reason it works. Um, I actually have the score on vinyl because <laughs> I, I just like listening to it a couple times a year. And uh, The Gremlins Rag is one of the best horror movie little scores because it, abs- it absolutely sounds like the Gremlins are playing the song. Yeah. <laughs> Richard Band wishes. He wishes. He wishes he could write something that simple and idyllic, right? And uh, it opens with, like, uh, Phil Spector Christmas, like, beauty and, like, shows you the sweep of the town and this, like, idyllic town they're going to take apart. Like, the production value on this is fairly insane. Um, Phoebe Cates is, like, good lord. Like, what do you say about Phoebe Cates? Like, she's... Adorable. She's the cutest human being that's ever lived. I don't know how yeah. to say this. She's she's incredible. And you just, you fall in love with her immediately and, like, you want everybody to be okay. And I think that, like, I, I feel like the... My only real issue with the movie is that it, while it is definitely trying to make fun of its xenophobic characters and the framing device of you know basically a guy more or less stealing this chinese animal from a china chinese like a uh, store of some variety like he basically he more or less steals it because the kid's like this isn't for sale but like give me 200 dollars and you can have it like we we need to eat and then at the end uh the chinese grandfather coming in and being like you can't handle the responsibility here like you were you weren't even trusted with this to begin with. Why that? Why you know what? Would I let you continue to destroy yourselves with this? I feel like is it's it's trying to similar to ways that I think Die Hard does. It's trying to undermine some of the Orientalism of the period and the the anti Asian racism of the eighties. But it also engages in Orientalism. Like the beginning is 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 just straight up. It's it's similar to Temple of Doom. It's just straight up like. Here's a 1920s adventure book version of what an Asian country is. And it's unfortunate that we grew up watching all these 80s directors repeat the genre films they loved when they were children. And some of them are like the best movies ever made in our eyes because that's what we grew up with. Like, yes. But, you know, I, I have similar feelings about like John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. Like, that movie doesn't sit right with me a lot of the time yeah like does it make is it fine because like all of the you know shaw brothers movies are that ridiculous at the time and it's like well it was written and directed by white people like i think the difference matters yeah it's just a shame that like they are very appreciative of like the right things in those kinds of movies but like the wrong stuff sort of trails behind it with that momentum yeah and then it's carried on to us when it could have just been left in the past yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's a good way of putting it. That's it's it's uh it's the one bummer in this movie is that they had to engage in some orientalism to um bring this exotic weird animal into the mix. Another bummer for me is that uh as I'm getting older, Dick Miller no longer looks ancient to me. Um, <laughs> and that's troubling. <laughs> Dick Miller, yeah, no longer looks like he is like genuinely crawled out of a casket to deliver his <laughs> monologue and then crawled back in the casket. 
No, it's more like only a matter of time until I am Dick Miller. <laughs> I'm, I look at him and I'm like, and I'm like, he's more lively than my dad is. Like, this right, is right. bummer. <laughs> um, I love love Dick Miller so much. Um, but yeah, this is a movie about um, our hypocrisy and our greed, or our you know our consumerism at the at Christmas time. Sure, but it's really a movie about our technology backfiring at us on us. And uh, it's interesting to watch one of these movies actually have themes. Um, so I just figured I would touch on that because this is a movie that's very interesting to watch as an adult. So you're like, oh, this is a movie about how we're so dependent on technology and like a, a you know, a literal, you know, a bug in the system, a, a, a little gremlin uh, could completely turn our lives into chaos. And the moment when the gremlins really just turn on suburbia and you see people running around terrified, like is actually like, I would say for a, a kid's movie that was PG is actually like pretty disturbing like you see a woman like just get fly through the window and land in the street even though oh, she's yeah. tough and then you see all these other people like freaking out and the santa is covered in gremlins attacking him and eating him and then the cops just drive away till they crash like the the, the like the, this general sense of helplessness in that second act is it's it's a uh, joe dante glory um, I don't have a, I, you know, I have so many, so many things I could say about this movie. You know, uh, this is our one of two Corey Feldman uh, appearances this week. <laughs> well, uh, okay, let's jump. Let's do that. Let's let's yeah, jump uh, yeah. ship there because I could talk about Gremlins for I could talk about Gremlins literally forever. So let's let's move it. No, that's like a healthy we love to watch topic. Like that's something y'all do on your show that we don't. Is that you will like delve into a movie for like two hours plus and like have very thoughtful, well-researched um, opinions on what's going on. Uh, and then we, we're more of like a ramshackle, like here's the basic idea. <laughs> I would say, I would say uh, most people f- prefer brevity, but let's, <laughs> I'll take the compliment and let's move along. <laughs> well, I'd be interested if you have um, a three hour lecture on puppet master versus demonic toys in your back pocket. Uh, <laughs> See, this is this is this is the swamp uh, treatment where like I we you know, we could have talked about gremlins for an hour and a half and then talked about this for 10 minutes. But like we would have never devoted time to Puppet Master versus Demonic Toys. But like when you're watching a movie like this, you genuinely have forgotten what that era of DTV movies looks like. Like nobody talks about what this era of like basically just lining blockbuster shelves looks like i was warned away from puppet master versus demonic toys when i was like 12 by a a blockbuster employee i brought up like five tapes i don't even remember what the other four were and he was like he was like uh these three are really good like you know if if you're gonna rent multiple movies like these are good you should you know this one's fine and then uh puppet master versus demonic toys i i I really would like you to put this down (laughs) i really don't want you to rent this we used to have a proper country where <laughs> <laughs> there were angels among us uh, <laughs> protecting us from our terrible choices. Uh, not the last time that um, terrible blockbuster video uh, rentals will come up later in this conversation either. Good Lord. This movie looks like it was shot on like, it looks, doesn't look like it was shot on a cell phone. It looks like it was shot in like an LG chocolate. Yeah, actually the two full moon features that we watched for this conversation on Tubi look marginally but not exceptionally better than uh the vhs rip of elves on youtube they're they're (laughs) not on the same level i can tell what's happening yeah 
it is objectively better in that I can see what's happening. It is objectively worse in that I I don't want to see what's happening. So this is a pretty, you know, cynical mashup of two of Full Moon's more recognizable properties. Yeah. Puppet Master, which is a collection of small puppet figures raised through magic science. Uh, I believe the further you get into that series, the more Nazi magic comes into play there as well. Uh, just it like does. elves. I've seen I've seen the Craig S. Zoller one and uh, don't recommend it. Didn't watch that, but I've seen probably the first three or four in the series. And like, I remember the like period piece ones being better than the first movie. But I don't know if I was just getting Stockholm syndrome from like hanging out with those puppets for so long. Uh, because you do love the individual characters, the more you yeah. get to see them kill people. Yeah, where you just like, oh my god, they paid a historical society to use their space <laughs> for half an hour. Charles really cared on this one. And then Demonic Toys, maybe lesser known than Puppet Master, but like at this point, there's like Ginger Dead Man versus Evil Bong movies. Like it doesn't really matter how popular the characters are, they will mash up every configuration they can. There's a Doll Man, which I believe is unrelated to the Stuart Gordon dolls. Yes, unrelated. He is a uh, doll sized man. Um, and from what I could tell from my furious Googling, has no Christmas movies, which is very <laughs> frustrating. So this one was the one that Charles Band did not make himself. He outsourced this to Sci-Fi Channel, which is a very easy check to cash. But it is an interesting bridge because Corey Feldman was a child in Gremlins. Mm -hmm. uh, just sort of hangs around. He's like the inappropriately younger friend of the main character of that movie. Because the original script, like the character, the main character was younger. And then they cast Corey Feldman and they were like, well, we're not going to fire him now that we've made <laughs> Zach Gilligan older. You know, I like it. It's a sweet dynamic, to be honest. It's it, very it sweet. Makes him more innocent that he has like a child friend that young and they just have like a very playful brotherly relationship you know it, it works it also adds to the small town vibe like he brings he brings uh one of gizmo's offsprings to like the science lab he doesn't like bring them to like like i grew up near fermi lab he doesn't bring them to like a a, a true science lab he brings them to like you know the high school chemistry teacher because he knows right. you know it, it adds to the cuteness i think i don't think there's anything cute about puppet master versus demonic toys no, <laughs> Corey Feldman is, uh, you know, he's 20 years older, but they grade up his hair and he's acting like he's maybe 40 years older. He's like the old grizzled mad scientist character in this movie who's resurrecting the puppet master toys. And then there's an evil corporation again, Halloween three season, the witch style that's going to unleash these demonic toys on Christmas. And then the two factions have to war against each other. Um, and Feldman's performance is supposed to be the big charismatic center that like provides comedic value because he's a famous person acting older than he is. And he just doesn't have the juice. Like, it's just not funny. No. <laughs> not entertaining. I do not know if he hung that albatross around his neck or Charles Band did, but making a baby-faced Corey Feldman, who still has a, a baby face... Um, it's, it's been time weathered, but it's, it's the Macaulay Culkin effect where like a lot of child actors just like, you know, you, you looked like you looked young for your age at 14. So you look young for your age at 40. Um, a baby faced Corey Feldman doing a gravelly voiced old man thing and trying to seem like, I don't know, like <laughs> a little bit doddering. 
Uh, not cute, mostly confusing. Didn't hear many of the lines he was saying because I was just so distracted by the performance. I really don't know if he hung that albatross around his neck or Charles banded. I mean, my only quip about it, I already texted you, so maybe not funny anymore, but like... Well, uh, Brandon, I've never heard this quip before. <laughs> but like, he should be getting residual fines instead of residual paychecks <laughs> for this. It is very straining on the audience's patience. It's, <laughs> it is not fun to watch. It is not It is not fun to watch. Brandon, by the way, you, Aaron, you're not safe with Aaron, but you're always safe to reuse jokes from the text thread <laughs> with me. Um, Aaron will hold you to task, but I, I would never do such a thing. I, I do think that's like indicative though of a, how hostile this movie is towards its audience. Yes. And the other like quote unquote joke it keeps going back to is that it keeps counting down to Christmas and the closer it gets to the Christmas payoff where there's going to be like this big war between the puppets and the toys, um, keep getting more frequent. So it's like one day until Christmas, six hours until Christmas, five minutes until Christmas. Three minutes until Christmas. I was tearing my hair out. It's so annoying. Well, because you know nothing's going to be there. You know right. it's going to be an empty box, right? Well, I mean, I do think the fight is good. And I think, like all Charles Band productions, like when he is indulging in his fetish, which is little tiny things moving around creepily, it is fun to watch. And I actually had a smile on my face uh, anytime the toys were moving and no one was talking. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. All of the space they have to fill in between those times. Absolutely. No one gave half of a shit. Yeah. So, okay. So I watched the original demonic toys. Uh, I, I was sort of joking about having a basis, but I was like, you know what? I haven't seen puppet master in forever. Like I should, I should check out demonic toys. So I at least have some basis here. Somebody to root for him, maybe. And, um, <laughs> The demonic toys are the bad guys in this movie, I guess. I still rooted for them. Um, <laughs> the best kill in the movie, unrelated to toys and the main villain administers it, the movie just has an Iron Maiden in the basement, and the toys don't even put the sacrifice in the Iron Maiden. Completely unrelated to them being dolls. In the original demonic toys, by the way, there is, um, I think it's uh, not Little Devil. That's from Nothing But Trouble. Um, Oopsie Daisy. Baby the, the baby doll. Oh, she is a delight. I love Oopsie <laughs> Daisy. Um, she does get a nut stab in the original Demonic Toys. Um, just want if we're counting those, there's two. And uh, in this one, there's not a lot of great doll kills because a lot of the fights are confined to one of two chambers. And like, there's like a SWAT team that comes in and they basically get scared off instead of murdered off. And then at the end, the dolls are mostly hurting each other. There's not like a lot of like men in the crossfire, which is kind of a shame. And uh, the demonic toys looked so much better in the original movie. I don't know what happened. Like, did they lose them between movies? Like they're rubber dolls. Like, did they did they actually kill them at the end of the movie and blow them up? And now that there is no more, like they look so much worse in in this movie compared to and i would say the puppet master puppets as well look so much worse in this movie than they do in the previous movies i'm like yeah but the original ones weren't breaking the bank either like what happened to you my assumption and maybe this is generous with most of these movies like when things go wrong is like pure budget yeah so like maybe during the video market heyday where like every video store wanted something on the shelves you could get a sizable 
B picture budget together to do your stop motion horror film. By the time Sci-Fi Channel is licensing sort of these dead properties for these novelty Christmas movies that have to be hammered out in like 10 days of filming, I'm just assuming the money wasn't there to do it, right? Yeah, yeah, I think you're correct. It all comes down to money, you're right. Yeah, which is a bummer. I mean, I, th- a lot of the problems with these films is not knowing how to fill the time or not caring how to fill the time between the effect shots that sell the poster and the trailer. Maybe what we should have watched was 12 Slaves of Christmas, which is a <laughs> recent Charles Band cash-in on properties like Demonic Toys, Puppet Master, Ginger Dead Man, Evil Bong. It is a Christmas movie with a wraparound about these, like, I guess, buxom hotties who are trapped in a snowstorm and go to an evil Christmas ghoul's house, and he recounts them with evil tales of things that have happened on Christmas past. And they're basically just clip shows of kill scenes from earlier Charles Band films. So like, so you get the best of the demonic toys kills without having to pay any attention to Corey Feldman or whoever else is killing time. I am absolutely going to watch this. I've been talking a lot of shit about Charles Band. I'm absolutely going to watch this. I'm sure it's terrible, but it's also only 40 minutes, uh, which, you know, oh, a blessing. <laughs> <laughs> I assumed this was like an hour and 70 minute clip show. I didn't know he couldn't come up with a full feature length clip show. Well, instead of 12 Slaves of Christmas, we watched The Ginger Dead Man, uh, in which Gary Busey, as a serial killer freak, is resurrected in the body of a gingerbread cookie. Which is a very cute little puppet. It's got a terrible little face that every time it goes into close-up, it's not like Gremlins where it looks great when it fills the frame. It's horrible. Like It's so cheap that it's upsetting. <laughs> they, they put it on all of the posters. <laughs> I kind of like it. It's like looking at like a puckered asshole or something. Like It's very upsetting instantly, <laughs> but not in any kind of dignified way. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely looks like something that they took out of a body. Um, <laughs> it, it looks, it looks unfortunately anatomical, and the fact that it's that color makes me feel like okay, like yeah, this buggered asshole spent two weeks <laughs> in Florida. And I guess the difference between this one and the Corey Feldman performance in the Demonic Toys movie is that like Gary Busey actually is terrifying in this film for the, for the three minutes, five minutes he's in, three yeah. minutes in, yeah. <laughs> He's creepy. The very first scene, he holds like a diner hostage with a gun. And it's a very like upsetting, unnerving opening to the movie. And then once he's trapped in a gingerbread cookie, uh, you know, Chucky style, a lot of that power just kind of goes away. And instead, you're watching what I will call like a Disney Channel version of Mean Girls. Sort of like <laughs> yes. mid 2000s, like sassy catty back and forth between these characters with no personality um and you're just kind of waiting for the kill scenes where the serial killer cookie pops up and i will say every time he did i did have a smile on my face particularly in scenes where he drives a car by using the uh rolling pin as an extender of his foot because he's too short to reach the the pedal like there's there's good bits in the movie i think it's just you know they're very spread out among like a lot of dead air but also, Spread Out is so funny because it's a 70-minute movie. Oh, it is a sweaty 70 minutes. They're struggling to get to that finish line. <laughs> and, yeah, there's 
one precisely one good twist or one good plot movement in the entire movie. Um, and that's that one of the guys to defeat the ginger dead man decides to eat it. <laughs> and then it turns him into like a, you know, a killer killer baker. I think that that's a good bit. They, they also, it's, it's good for like a shock value thing, but like, I, I want to see the ginger dead man. So I'm happy they kill him pretty quickly. They put him in the oven, but the interesting thing about this movie is that like it's 70 minutes and there's like no connecting tissue. And I wonder if like there's like just unusable scenes involving Gary Busey and he was just like impossible to work with or something. Um, Cause it sounds like he signed on the movie right away and he's claimed to have a nice time shooting it or something because like, I don't want to, so I don't want to blame Gary Busey. I'll, I'll blame Charles band here. Um, he is the common denominator. I mean, he did direct this one himself. Yeah. Um, there's like not connective tissue. You don't even see his character get arrested. He just sort of like, he just hears sirens and then he just sort of like looks off camera and then that cuts to like the title, like ginger dead man. You also don't see the process in which he gets turned into gingerbread dough. Uh, I don't know. Isn't he just delivered as a bin of cursed dough to the bakery? (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. I'm picturing the like scene where, uh, you know, the, the baker gets his hand cut and there's just like intense amounts of blood, <laughs> like way too much blood to like overlook spilling yes. into that dough. And that's like <laughs> the dark magic that raises the serial killer. So I don't know if it was like soul was haunting the bakery and it had nothing to do with the dough itself. I think he came in the, the like some sort of dough or flour came in that was our, that was like was the ashes were spread in it. <laughs> it essentially like all the like the warm-up stuff in this movie is gone and they're just like well you already know a ginger dead man exists we showed you the poster right we don't need to get you there i mean they did not care enough to make that connection clear no so i think that full moon the way that i would as we're sort of wrapping up the charles band connection here uh, there's one more excuse me as we're wrapping up the mainline charles band connection um putting a tourniquet on this wound um, Full Moon features, especially in the sci-fi era, transitioned into that model, which is, well, you're curious, right? You want to see the Super Python fight the Super Omega Megalodon or whatever. Like, you want to see uh, Mecha Jaws versus, uh, you know, Pterosaur or whatever. Like, you're curious, aren't you? And then it's this, you know, CGI bullshit. Full Moon kind of transitioning into that, like, well, you want to see the the shitty puppet, don't you? I think really is, like, sad in a way that, like, I can't quite handle. The Sharknado quality is killing your spirit. Thank you. That the sh- thank you. It's Sharknado has become so representative of like a trend in horror that that kills me. Like I, you know. I, I didn't mind torture porn. There were a lot of movies I liked in that trend. I even liked some of the PG-13 ghost horror movies. Like, But the one trend in the past 20 years of horror that's really, really gotten my goat is the like, well, if we're not going to make a good movie anyways, why don't we lean in and make a bad movie on purpose? And I was like, well, why don't you tell me in advance so that I don't go see it? Put a little stamp on here that said this is for people to watch ironically and I can skip it. And I think this is like kind of edging into that era. And by the time you get to Ginger Dead Man versus Evil Bong, I'm just I'm not I'm not going to watch that far. I'm sorry. My my curiosity really got murdered um, by the Ginger Dead Man <laughs> with a gun. He's with got a gun. A gun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I will make a counter argument slightly here in that 
the people who made like the asylum type like Sharknado versus Megalodon or whatever type like factory that just turns that stuff out. I don't think they care about the monsters, you know, it really is just about the poster and the title, which is a very like old school style of hucksterism like that, like David Friedman, um, Herschel Gordon Lewis style where like it doesn't matter what movie we make. It just matters that we get the butts in the seats with the advertising, you know? Yeah. There's no and care in the I'm final product. For 60 minutes, I get to see, I get to see uh, boobs and uh, bloodletting for the last 10 minutes, even though the first 60 minutes are so boring, right? Right. I don't ever want to see the CGI shark. Sorry, go on. <laughs> I, get, I guess where I think Charles Band is different from that style of hucksterism, though, is like, he is cynically making these movies like you said, bad on purpose because there is a instant paycheck there where like irony poisoned audiences will show up to watch the ginger dead man fight evil bong, which I feel like I've referenced so many times now that I probably should have watched it. <laughs> so like <laughs> yeah. really weigh in on its quality, but I'm sure it's bad. Um, I think that he has demonstrated over the decades, a genuine love or maybe just fascination or preoccupation with animating tiny little demons that mm -hmm. like if what signs his check is hiring Gary Busey or Eric Roberts, whatever washed up meme he can afford, like whatever sub Nick Cajun stunt casting he can afford is going to sign the check that pays to animate his little freaks that like, he is just happy for the three to 10 minutes of little freak animation. He can squeeze out of the project. I think you're, I think you're right there. So, like, I, I'm not going to stand up for the Ginger Dead Man being a good movie, but, like, there's something about the bigger picture that it fits in where, like, even if individual full mo movies are bad, I still feel affection for, like, the enterprise of continuing to make them. Yeah, so, okay, so I guess what I would interpret that as is uh, I might not be having fun, but at least Charles Band had fun. <laughs> sure. Um, so maybe, maybe vicariously I can enjoy some of that through old Charles Band. And I think that he has created a very specific subgenre. maybe not created, but I think he's provided a lot of it, especially in the video store era, which was like R rated movies for children. Like, there's something about like unsupervised kids with like cable access or like parents who didn't really care about what tapes they plucked off the shelves at Blockbuster, like didn't really put a lot of scrutiny on what kids were watching. So like the bar of entry at a movie theater had been lowered by the time he was like in his heyday in the 80s and 90s. And like a lot of his movies have the aesthetics and tone and the dinky Casio score from his brother that feel like they belong in like a children's film. And the violence that results in those frames are, you know, not for kids. There's often a lot of sex and bloodshed in these full moon movies that are just like really not appropriate for the kids who are watching it. But no, no adults really have the patience to sit through stuff like the ginger dead man, unless you're absolutely deranged and have a movie podcast in the 2020s. <laughs> I think what has paid off from that and why a lot of these movies I would classify as like post Charles band films instead of like post gremlins movies is because the people who did grow up watching them have gone on to improve Like they, they like loved demonic toys when they watched it in the nineties. And now that they have the means to make a movie that they're going to make a better version of it because they actually want it to be good on like a technical level and they care about the final product a little more. 
And I would say the movie that's very obvious in that lineage is Krampus from 2015. Yes. Which is the movie that we've both covered on our separate, you know, outlets as thoroughly as we could. But I still think it's worth mentioning here. Um, I even more so than I remembered. I, I brought it up thinking like, oh, there's like little gingerbread cookies that have a kill scene with David Koechner. There's like that Jack in the Box with its horrible mouth. Uh, you know, like there's a couple little creepy crawly things that are, I think, worth mentioning in this conversation. And then rewatching the movie for this discussion, I was just shocked by like how many little guys are all over this movie. Like <laughs> Krampus gets the title card top billing as the villain, this like evil version of Santa Claus. But most of the kills and most of the like scene to scene terror are carried out by Krampus's little helpers, which include an evil teddy bear, an evil Christmas angel, this like stabby robot, uh, the gingerbread man, the Jack in the box. And then there's like a whole little army of elves as well. Like there's so many little guys all over this movie that I'd like really forgotten about. And so many of them are like practically rendered on screen instead of CGI, which I, I think helps it stand out as one of the better like Christmas horrors of the past few years. A- absolutely um i actually sent you a picture before we started recording that i'm wearing my krampus shirt today that is specifically a licensed product from the michael doherty movie oh, yeah. um like i uh I-, I do love this movie i actually like it now more than when it came out um i think that at the time we were in this weird bubble where like we were actually getting like a lot of like krampus content and it felt like the movie had arrived a little too late. And now it feels like we've gotten so much of the that content that Krampus has sort of become like almost more of like a, a mainstream or semi-mainstream piece of folklore. It's it's now no longer, you know, it's it's like a Bigfoot, you know. Um it's 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 now something that like eight year olds know about, right? It's no longer like you've never heard of this before. Think of this weird tradition from Europe that like got by you. Well, there's literally a, there's a, um, who's the famous chef? Um, Anthony Bourdain voiced a, like, Krampus stop motion animation short that I think was on, like, online or on the Food Network or something a few years ago. I don't know where the, where, what the outlet was. And it was 10 or 15 years ago, and it was specifically to tell audiences about the myth of Krampus. There was a Venture Brothers, like, 10-minute Christmas episode that was just, like, entirely about, like, what's the iconography of Krampus? Like there was a there was a series of movies in a row and, and pieces of media that was it, the entire goal was to be like, have you never heard of Krampus? And so when this movie arrived, it was like kind of it was kind of over like done. I was like, I, I we get it, okay? Like scary Santa, we got it. Um, at the time, I remember pra- praising like Rare Exports more because Rare Exports takes Santa and makes him fucked up and weird. Um. But watching Krampus, like, even, like, a year or two later, and now, like, it has really just grown on me and all the things that it does perfectly well. And I think seeing it in this context in particular makes it glow. So even the episode (laughs) I recorded when it first came out, like, I'm more positive on it than I am now. Um, Or, sorry, I am now than I was then. A notorious we-love-to-watch-podcast in my mind because (laughs) uh, you and Aaron had very different interpretations in the final scene. And honestly, I don't want to relitigate because I don't even remember who was on what side. But like, I would felt so strongly about who was right that I was like verbally arguing alongside that person, like cheering them on. 
so here's the here's the the truth is that Aaron and I are such good friends and I love him so dearly that he has now entered into an inner circle of friend that is the sibling layer which is very unfortunate. <laughs> and when the sibling layer, I don't particularly care if I'm right. I just have to be right. James and I slip into that dynamic sometimes for sure. <laughs> yeah. I can now recognize that he was correct in his interpretation of the ending. However, when your older brother is super dismissive of something you say, especially something you say kind of offhand, all of a sudden you're like, you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> and that, that fully explains why Aaron and I had a... 20 minute argument about that centered on snow globes on the show. Um, and <laughs> I still years later, we don't generally have an argumentative show, but like I can remember every single one of them and why I was arguing that point because that sticks in my head. Hey, Siskel and Ebert did not get famous from like getting along all the time, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's just a lot of podcasts that try and force that dynamic where they're like, Oh, we're going to be dicks to each other. Uh, and it just never works out. They have to, you have to genuinely like each other before you can hate each other in a, in a really pure way. You know, I will say uh, looking around now and that we're talking about it, uh, Swamp Flicks was on the right side of history here. We had uh, Krampus in our top 10 movies of 2015. Which, it's a great uh, movie. It seems very bizarre. Like in retrospect, I don't know that we have like outlier choices like that. Eccentric. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Megan will be in our top 10 this year. We'll see. It is a correct choice in that I remember at the time it getting a lot of middling reviews from even like the nerd publications in a way that I, I, I was like disappointed in. Um, I remember being like, well, what what did you want here? What I would give as a like corrective to anyone who does not have like fully fond memories of it is like watch the behind the scenes documentary short it's about 10 minutes long of how the practical effects were staged with the little helpers like the amount of care and like puppetry and i don't know just the, the amount of like practical gadgetry that created that effect even i had forgotten how tactile it is i i had rem remembered more of the movie being the cgi gingerbread men who i do not think have aged well uh, compared to everything else and really like so much of it is sort of lovingly done in a tactile way that i think will help the movie sort of live on past its true expiration date yeah i, I fully agree with you there um it is uh, a movie that has aged remarkably well i think on on just about every level except for the gingerbread man and the i remember the gingerbread man li little fuckers running or little cgi fuckers running around being more of a thing um when in reality, there's a lot of practical effects that you could tell, like puppetry, animatronics, like lots of modern tricks of the trade went into it. And that the you can tell the actors in certain scenes are giving it all because they're actually looking at something and not one of those CGI disco balls, right? And I, I think that if I wanted to sum up the movie in in a in a quick little blurb, is the movie, similar to Gremlins, I think in tone, it's probably of all these movies, it's closest to Gremlins. It also has, you know, some studio money, not Gremlins studio money, but maybe maybe it cost $11 million in 2015. That does not adjust for inflation. I don't know if the actual budget was. How much of that went into Tony Collette's bank account? We'll never know. <laughs> Listen, $14 million, But like, let's... <laughs> she is overqualified for this movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, she is. I think Adam Scott is perfectly qualified for this movie, and, and Tony Collette is, is perhaps uh, overqualified. But 
if I want to sum this movie up, is that similar to Gremlins, it's a mix of tones, and it's supposed to make you feel that sort of dirty sense that you're like, this is disturbing, but also funny in the same moment. Am I allowed to laugh? Um, I do not think this movie should be PG-13, just purely for the audience. I think this is firmly a rated R movie. I think this is not a movie I would show a, your standard 10-year-old ten, or whatever. I mean, I would show a 13-year-old it, but, you know, the way we use these ratings, um, the PG-13 now means, like, well, a 10-year-old that's somewhat mature, right? Um, it is a... Anti-Christmas movie, sure, but it's from the perspective of, a, a, you know, an anti-Christmas movie, it has some cynicism about the holiday, but it's kind of, um, I, I recently was reminded of a, a definition of what a cynic is, uh, or what a pessimist is, um, and it was, uh, if you scratch a cynic, you'll find a disappointed idealist underneath, right? I think that this is a movie where the lead character is a Michael Doherty um, who really wanted to make a Halloween movie, maybe. But he uh, he's making his his mean Christmas movie, just like he already made his mean Halloween movie with Trick or Treat, which is my mind, the like maybe the Halloween movie next to Halloween. And uh, this movie is an anti-Christmas movie that comes from a place of love, I think. It's it's a movie that can recognize like there's good there's goodness in here and there's a possibility of forgiving one another and accepting one another for your faults and your your ills. Um, but instead, um, we tend to just get wrapped up in our egos and all of the consumerism around the holiday. And it literally opens with a Black Friday, you know, um, I don't know, stampede. stomping massacre. Yeah, stampede. There we go. Thank you. Uh, it's like I learned German first. Stomping Massacre? How, how did I not have the word stampede in there? Um, and, and the fact that the movie is just so committed to the, like, don't fuck with, don't fuck with the, the purpose of this holiday. Like, let go of your ego. Like, actually be kind to each other. Like, and respect the rituals. Like, in a weird way. Which is the exact same approach he took to his Halloween movie. Like, if you take your decorations down early, like before Halloween's even over, you will get killed by the little candy killer. It's literally the opening sequence of Trick or Treat with with a uh, pumpkin head. And then in this one, it's like Tony Collette bought her cookies from the store instead of making her own cookies. You know, something bad's going to happen. She's not respecting the rituals. Yeah, and I think some of that is like mean spirited, right? And some of it is like it's more about the, what it's indicating about the character, right? Like. Were you so wrapped up in the the hustle and bustle and the craziness of the season that you didn't do something that you actually love and brings you joy? Like, um, some of it, but some of that is cynical and mean spirited. It's like, yeah, some people you don't have to fucking bake cookies if it doesn't make you happy, right? Like, that's not you're supposed to eat with your family. I don't particularly right. care if you eat a Christmas ham. Yeah, I guess the bigger sin is that she hates most of her family. <laughs> that's really <laughs> yes. what like uh really brings the Krampus to their doorstep. The way that they shortcut things and just say, like, oh, just order it or, you know, um, oh, we already, you know, we, we already bought those at the store. Like, the way that they use those shortcuts, I think, is more indicative of, like, their disconnection from the holiday and the fact that they're take, they take all of each other for granted. But, but that connection with Trick or Treat and, like, respecting those rituals is a much cleaner argument for him being a notorious director 
than like i don't know him going on to make a godzilla movie or whatever <laughs> yeah yeah. It's kind of a shame that he did not make the Thanksgiving movie that Eli Roth has out in theaters right now. Like that really should have been a Michael Doherty joint. There's still time. Um, I think people generally like that Eli Roth movie, which is maybe a first in 10 years, but um, and maybe the last in the next 10 years. <laughs> uh, it sounds like that Borderlands movie is going to be a shit show. I did hear it also opens with a uh, Black Friday stampede, and that's like the impetus for the killing, which I definitely had me thinking about Krampus again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Krampus is uh, is something with... I, I mean, I guess I said earlier, Gremlins is the only movie on this list with, with ideas at its heart. Krampus definitely has ideas at its heart, and its ideas are... Um, we have turned this, this uh, beautiful... Th- this beautiful thing into something tawdry, which... You know, sure, like Black Friday, the Black Friday splurge is something new. Like, that's our lifetime. Um, That is not a hundred-year-old tradition. Bing Crosby doesn't uh, cut off one of his songs to say, like, oh, Sears has a deal on a whole house. I gotta go get it. <laughs> They're selling two houses for the price of one. The, the, this sort of cautionary tale, Um, there's 10 million movies about... Let, that let people kind of learn this lesson and come out the better on the other end. <laughs> this is a movie that's like, oh, you learned the lesson? Great. You're still in hell. You fucked up. Like The characters are sort of like redeemed in in, in a, a personal sense, but like they're not redeemed in the sense that like Krampus hasn't forgotten them. Once Krampus shows up, <laughs> the deal is kind of done. Yeah. And, and and we actually referenced earlier, like Annabelle being like the the master of like other demons and stuff, like because Annabelle can't do shit. Definitely Krampus's problem. Yeah, he is a big lumbering beast, and he he is like formidable and like can raise tension, but he's not quick on the movements, and he, he needs little helpers to scurry around his hooves, you know, <laughs> doing most of yeah. the work. Yeah, and that is a great prosthetic, the like hunchback like sunken eyes like yawning mouth like it's stiff but in a way that actually is creepy um krampus is a a tremendous prosthetic so that one and gremlins are like the two best crafted films just as in terms of like just actual quality and like staging these kills i think it's pretty inarguable um charles band might be on the lower end of the technical side of that but you know I think he has a genuine passion for little guys running around, even though if he does not care about Christmas whatsoever. Um, everything after that, I want to say was all dredged up through your research. So I kind of want to give you like an open floor. What What's left? Like, what are the standouts? What did you really like? Okay. Um, I can say uh, toy, uh, Toys of Terror is one that I wanted to definitely make you watch. Um, I hadn't seen it, but I was like, but I had heard, they did stop motion animation toys and they do like a singing dancing period um, or a sequence. Excuse me. Um, I absolutely loved that portion of the movie. Other than that, the character stuff and you know, it, it's all like the most competent of competent. Like it's, it's you understand what is happening within a scene and some of the kills look good, but like the stop motion animation puppet toys and the little voices they have and the quirks of personality and how they they kind of like move around the frame like all of that is so charming that like it it makes that movie like kind of rise above a lot of the movies here it's surprisingly good for a direct to video movie from 2020 yeah do you see who who wrote it uh 
Was it Dana Gould? <laughs> yeah, Dana Gould wrote it. So he's a stand-up. I'm I'm pretty fond of his work. Um, he has for a while tried to become like a horror guy. He wants that Bobcat Goldthwait acclaim. Yes, <laughs> he wants that cachet. But he had a show called Stand Against Evil that I watched. Um, that was fine. It's sort of like a comedy horror show. It's a little bit Buffy, but it's it's sort of like an Ash versus Evil Dead thing. And they unfortunately kind of came out at the same time. And Ash versus Evil Dead is like really good. And um, Stand Against Evil is just sort of like cute. Uh, John John McGin- John C. McGinley is is like the lead character, and he's sort of like a a grumpy old old dude, and he has you know he runs into demons every week. It's not it's not quite as fun as it sounds, but uh, the sense of humor in Toys of Terror, like I feel like some of the toys have funny little lines, but like it feels like for a movie written by a comedian that I think is actually really funny and was like a Simpsons writer, like it should be a funnier movie. It's almost like competent to a fault. Like the yeah. Charles Band stuff, like Ginger Dead Man, is like so bad it's almost memorably insulting to your intelligence. Where like this is a competent film that has really brilliant moments, but like it almost feels more disposable because it doesn't really stand out as particularly great or terrible for like long stretches. But it, no. I think, I think it does have ideas, maybe in a way that like the Charles Band movies don't. Like it is. Touching on something you mentioned in our big opening segment where, like, it does talk about children, like, imprinting on their dolls. And, like, the reason that these objects come to life is because they're so closely related to these, like, abused, sad ghosts of children. It's almost like a hat on a hat. It's, like, not only an evil dolls movie, it's also, like, a knockoff of the others. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you get the spooky kids wearing, like, one of them's wearing, like, a, a, a dinosaur helmet. Sort of, you know. Uh, dehumanized a little bit yeah the dolls have have been anthropomorphized and the kids have been demonized but as grim as that is um and as like kind of like calmly spooky it is like it's not like in your face over the top all the time it does have like a charles band lilt to it like Mm -hmm. it's kind of like krampus like i feel like whoever made this you know grew up watching stuff like demonic toys and was like i want to make my version of that movie and you can almost pinpoint exactly when they grew up watching that. Like, all of the toys are like kind of recognizable knockoffs of stuff that was popular in the 80s and 90s when we were children. So, like, there's like there's a, a glowworm, a He Man, a speaking spell. Like, but they're not exactly that. It's like slightly off. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you're, you're right. Sometimes competence brings up other things, right? Like, the fact that there's a video game that the girl is playing that like sort of mirrors what else is happening in the house. And like, it's like a passable, like eight bit piece of animation or 16 bit piece of animation. And you're like, Oh, this is like a movie that like had like some budget for special effects and some time at least to put them together. And so all of a sudden when there's an ending where like that, like the bittersweet, you know, almost good for her ending is that the um, babysitter who had a miscarriage gets to live forever with the ghost children at the orphanage. It's like fairly offensive to me, but like yeah. if this movie was a Charles band production, uh, I wouldn't take that so personally, you know, it happens in spooktober every year where I, the just one movie cost way too much money and touches on one of my triggers. Like um, lights out. I'm still mad at lights that movie. out. Lights out is one is, is, is a movie that still enrages me to this day. I walked out of that theater fuming. You cannot have 
Maria Bello killing herself in a movie and have it be like a happy ending. A heroic and act. I, I, I assure you that that's irresponsible. <laughs> um, yeah, as someone who's dealt with, you know, um, I've had self, self-harm self in my life. I've had, you know, people have died by suicide in my life. We've had miscarriages in our life. Like, horrible shit. Like, specific triggers, specific buttons. When they pop up in a movie that costs a nickel, I'm like, eh, who cares? But when it's a movie that, like, genuinely is, like, a studio movie that had, like, script advisors and stuff, and, like, it's very, very irresponsible with these topics and doesn't seem to be saying anything of particular value with the topics, I, I start to get cynical. And it's going to reach so many teenagers. Like, if you ever go yes. to a horror movie on opening weekend, they're just packed with, like, rowdy teens. Yes. <laughs> so, like, 100%. millions and millions of people just sort of absorbing this <laughs> uncritically, you know? Very upsetting. Yes. Yes, it, it it it's I find I find that I find that a little upsetting in this movie, but like you know, um, I do think that the sweetness of the movie overall shines through with the love of the uh, the toys. It is absolutely like a movie that if the guy who does the special effects for this is like I'm doing another demonic toy movie, I'd be like, yeah, absolutely. Tell me what day it comes out, right? It also makes an obvious move that no other movie besides Krampus makes in this genre, which is animating the Christmas Angel. And giving like the Christmas angel a kill. It's so good. It's so good. It's such a smart idea because they're like, well, why wouldn't everything else that people imbue with a sense of power and spirit and people argue about who gets to put up the Christmas angel? Why wouldn't that be imbued with this, you know, totemic demonic power? It's great. It's a great idea. But yeah, um, another one uh, I'd like to talk about um, is Silent Night, Deadly Night 5, The Toymaker. Um, now the only Silent Night Deadly Night movie I haven't seen. So I had not seen it before this somehow. Uh, I'm a fan of the series generally. I will agree four is the best of the series, even though it's barely a Christmas movie. It's actually Hell more yeah. a Hanukkah movie than a Christmas movie. <laughs> it, it features a lesbian occultist who hates Christmas. Yes, it, it's, it's a movie about a lesbian bug cult. And uh, the events happen to span the month of December. A non-religious Jewish woman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the main character. Uh, and her name is Kim. And she is, for some reason, a main character in Silent Night, Deadly Night 4. And I believe her children are bodily harmed in this movie. Um, Weird. Yeah. So the, there's a few things that happen in this movie where I'm like, okay, it's a killer toy movie. But the first toy in the movie... I would not if we were if we were playing by like you know sports rules. I would not let the opening kill count as a kill for the toy. This is a good distinction because it is not alive. It's not a little guy. It's a little toy. It's like actually it just toy. an automated weapon that someone has created. It is an automaton. I wanted to make sure we made this movie as sort of a, a an addendum to this list because it is not. It does not have a spirit within it. But it's an automaton that is a extension of the will of Mickey Rooney, who is a uh, yeah demonic toy maker. And the fireplace poker in the first kill actually gets the point. I, think. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. <laughs> that toy, that toy, I think gets an assist. Is how sports works. Um, the another note is that the toy store owner is they're doing a Geppetto and Pinocchio thing. Spoiler. Isn't his name Joe Petto? <laughs> Joe Petto? That's so fucking funny. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think? <laughs> okay. He's just introducing himself to his neighbor, and they're like, you're a what? 
the two highlights of this movie are both in the opening credits. Like it's a title card that says surrealistic visual design and effects by screaming mad George. You're like, fuck yeah. My heart soared when that happened. And then Mickey Rooney as Joe Petto. <laughs> That's like the uh, Vince McMahon meme. I like fell out of my chair. And my eyes glowed bright purple. <laughs> It is such a beautiful concurrence event of events. It's the exact opposite of what I was watching um, demonic toys. It was like, it was like a st- based on a story by, um, by Charles band. And you're like, Ugh. and then you're like <laughs> in a script by David S. Goyer. And you're like, Ugh. <laughs> like <laughs> it's, it's the, it's the opposite version of that. I go, tell me more. And you're like, Oh my God, tell me more. But uh, yes, uh, a- another weird connection to demonic toys. Uh, the little boy in this, Derek, uh, is played by an actor named William Thorne, who is the like angelic little boy, the Nutcracker boy from Demonic Toys. Weird. He has been in three movies, <laughs> and two of them were covered today. Two of them were were covered to some degree today. Um, there's killer skates in this movie. So roller skates that have firecrackers on it and the kid can't control where he's driving and it makes him crash into a car not only doesn't count as killer skates because he has to crash into a car for them to work they should blow up or something right but two um the car doesn't kill the kid so uh the killer skates actually get zero points on the board um but the the sequence where the toy soldiers the tanks like all of that like uh cycling truck I, i don't even know what you call it like a blade truck (laughs) um attack that couple in the bedroom that is a charles band moment it's so good yeah it's so good that's the point where it's like these are still automatons but to me they're real like this yes personalities (laughs) yes and there's a moment that i was like oh my god how would a toy hurt you and then the tank fires and it like blows a hole in her chest and it's like a full squib and i was like oh yes yes Charles Band stopped using squibs in 1987. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this rules. Um, there's not a lot of kills in the first hour. Um, it's mostly some hospitalizations and a very traumatized boy who both watched his parents have sex and then watched his stepdad get killed by a by a toy. But the last 15 or 20 minutes uh, is also featured heavily in um, Everything is Terrible. Um, the last 15 or 20 minutes uh, is a reveal that the toy maker was actually uh the toy maker had actually been murdered by his son pino aka pinocchio and he's like a robot boy who's horny for the mom in this movie and he takes his face off there's just a series of screaming mad george robot boy effects that you have to see that is the movie unfortunately that is the movie there's like a lot of dead air between the initial toy kill I think the only thing you haven't mentioned is there's like a tingler style, like a little inchworm thing that kills somebody while they're driving. Like, oh my god, and it's pretty cool. It pops out of their eyes. Oh yeah, that part's pretty sick. And then it makes the car flip over <laughs> um, and explode. <laughs> Those '80s cars used to blow up all the time. <laughs> well, I mean that nitroglycerin engine. We probably shouldn't have developed it. In Death Wish 3, there's also a moment when he, like, kisses a girl who's, like, 40 years younger than him, and then she goes driving, and then I think some hoodlums, like, crash into her car and just fireball, like, city block on fire because of this one ding. 
But that ending really is heroic and trying to make up for lost time because like there's a good hour where it feels like nothing happens in this movie. And there's an hour where you're like, oh, no, like, are they just going to introduce like more like like are they introducing like an incest plot? Like what is happening here? And then at the end, they're like, nope, just some fucked up robot shit. Anyways, (laughs) here's 15 minutes of fucked up robot shit. And it's upsetting, like the psychosexual dynamic at the end. It is a rape scene. Um, not a very like effectual one. I I don't know how much, uh, physiological detail I want to go into there, but like, it's horrible no matter what, like it goes through the maneuvers of a rape scene and it's, it's very upsetting to watch, but it's upsetting in the kind of way that like the whole time you're watching, like what sick fucking pervert made this? Like, why (laughs) did you put this on screen? To the point where it's like an endurance test that you kind of appreciate. Yes, I, I I very much appreciate how this went from like a silly little movie for children to like in the end. It's like, yeah, all the iconography, actually, we made it more childish, but more demented. Apparently, Screaming Mad George, he said in the... And I did watch special features for this, by the way. Um, <laughs> Screaming Mad George had six hours to make the uh, Mickey Rooney mask in this movie. That's impossible. And he did not do a mold. He did it by hand. What the fuck? It looks like a photograph of Mickey Rooney's face. Yes, he did it from pictures because Mickey Rooney didn't want it. I guess Mickey Rooney didn't sit. They didn't pay him for it or whatever. Like, he had to do it from a bunch of set pictures of Mickey Rooney. That man is a genius. I mean, it's been a while since, like, I think early on in this blog and podcast is, like, when I discovered society. Like, so it's been a long time since I've said it, but like every Usna Screaming Mad George joint is worth your time and attention. Even something like this that will waste some of that time and attention, uh, <laughs> it will deliver something that you will never forget. Every time he has a title card announcing sur- surrealistic makeup effects, you're in for something special and memorable. Yeah, you're you're getting an absolute treat. Um, you're going to see something that you have never seen before. Um, whether or not you like it, whether you like it or not, basically. I feel like we've done a run of Charles Band knockoff movies in a row. I think the like major Gremlins derivative that we haven't touched on yet uh, is Feeders 2, Sleigh Bells. <laughs> yeah, I think this is, I actually wrote in my notes, now we're talking, because I, wa- <laughs> I just watched Gingerbread Man, Gingerbread Man and um, the uh, uh, Demonic Toys uh, versus Puppet Master movie. And this opens, and it's got this, like, beautiful VHS aesthetics. And uh, in my mind, feeders, you know, I, I, I said earlier that perhaps um, we're, the elves are really more of a ghoulie. A feeder is really more of a critter, because a critter is from outer space. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'll allow, again, I will allow them to be called a gremlin for the benefit of this discussion. Um, this score... He has this great cornball MIDI score, and then it has a main theme that is like a, it sounds like a, it's like from a Doom score. Like, it's part MIDI ripoff and part like some dude fucking around in his garage on his guitar and trying to make his a song sound as badass as possible. And it's like two minutes long, and then it's over, and then the movie just goes back to this like, kind of like VHS, straight to VHS, cornball... Uh, family picture of a guy with two kids and a wife and a boss who's sort of a Mr. Scrooge figure that has absolutely no impact on the plot. Very memorable in his uh, one scene, though. Yeah. (laughs) 
he's just kind of a dickhead. And he's, he just kind of stomps in talking about how much he hates Christmas. And then the guy is home on Christmas to, like, eat dinner with his family and tuck his kids into bed. Did you watch the first feeders before this? Have you seen that movie? I did not. Um, the one copy on YouTube somehow looked in worse repair than feeders two did. So I did not jump back. It's on Tubi. I, I I thought the version of Tubi was watchable. Oh, nice. I'll have to I'll have to watch more movies by these filmmakers. I had not. I was not really familiar with them outside of knowing that they made a a, a series of little alien movies called Feeders. So the Polonia brothers are twin brothers who made a lot of movies on like SOV, like handheld camcorders. To me, the few I've seen always feel like they were submissions to America's Funniest Home Videos. Like it's a very like homespun backyard aesthetic. It feels like a family movie. Um, so it's kind of appropriate for Feeders 2 to be Christmas themed because like the one time a year most families would whip out the camcorder is for like 20 minutes on Christmas. Then it goes back on the shelf. Oh, yeah. What's incredible about them is that a lot of people saw their movies. Like the first Feeders came out in 1996 and was produced in a direct deal with Blockbuster Video to fill the shelves left empty by copies of Independence Day. Like Independence Day was moving so fast off the shelf, uh, they needed like something else that like when you went to go rent Independence Day, you were like, oh, damn, they're out. I'm going to get this other alien invasion movie to like hold me off for when I come back next week and Independence Day, I'll be back. And it's a backyard movie with like 90s computer graphics these little alien rubber puppets that look worse than the ones from elves and like have these horrible gurgling noises, like overloading the camcorder microphone, just like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, they make this constant, like garbage disposal sound. Grating. grating. Sounds like it constantly. sounds like you're trying to put chicken bones down a garbage disposal at all times. Okay. So what's incredible about the jump though, from, the first one to sleigh bells is in the first one. One of the twin brothers plays a character that is killed by the little gurgling monsters. He is replaced in the second movie by his identical twin. The other Polonia. (laughs) I thought it was the same actor. It's a different character and a different actor. (laughs) Fucking absurd. Different character, but I was genuinely like, oh, well, that's fine, you know, a low budget movie. I didn't know that they swapped the actor out in a way (laughs) in a way that no one would notice. They're not related as characters. They're only related in real life. I'm sure the people in their town in Ohio or whatever notice. I Oh, that's Mark. (laughs) I know Mark when I see Mark. (laughs) I know a Mark Polonia when I see one. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, I just thought that was very funny. And also another jump in continuity is like, usually when you make another movie in like a, a Critters style, or like maybe like Tremors or something like that, like in like Tremors 2, they'll have like the ass blasters. And now the Tremors fly because they can like yes. produce gas out of their anuses and then that propels them through the air. This one, they introduce a new type of feeder. Instead of a little alien gray figure, like in the first movie, there's now these like second types that are, it looks like a little tennis ball on top of a stick. Yeah, they have little tiny stick legs. <laughs> yeah, it's like a stick bug with a tennis ball at the top of it. 
and it's worse than the first type of feeder. It's like almost insulting that you have to look at this thing instead of like the better puppets they made for the first movie. It's really baffling. Oh my god. I, I wish that I had watched this closer to when I'd watched um, No One Will Save You. <laughs> <laughs> Just to really uh, let it let it stick home. I was wondering, because on the cover there's a classic gray, and on this one there's, yeah, these, these really, really, really bad looking aliens. Um, this is a weird entry for our series in one specific way. They are little stinkers. They, this certainly counts. I had a blast watching this. The thing that I like most about this movie are the people interactions and the weird, like, the, the kids are better actors than the adults. <laughs> like, the, the strange way that people talk about their day and, like, react to fear is, like, so charming and joyful for me. And And then when, like, the little monsters, like, are on frame, I'm like... I'm like, you know, I'm happy you're here, but I want to know what Mark Polonia thinks about all this. <laughs> um, I do like that the kids call them elves. kind of ties us back to the beginning. It kind of really puts a, a bow, so to speak, uh, on this episode. It's the same kind of unmoving, un- unarticulating rubber monster, too. Yes, yes. Extremely stiff. Extremely it's just stiff. a much sweeter movie. Yeah, that, that's partly why I was like, now we're talking. Because this is a movie that, like... These guys probably did have, you know, crappy office jobs for a long time that they hated. Like, if they're making this movie, it's because they want to make this movie. It's not like Charles Band, who has, like, if I don't make seven movies this year, my secretary, I have to fire my secretary. Like, it's a different beast. And uh, they, they eat a lot for how small they are, I gotta say. They eat cats, they eat humans. (laughs) <laughs> it, I, I I don't really know how their digestive system works, but, you know, that's perhaps the biggest mystery of them all in this movie. Uh, another mystery is whether or not Santa Claus exists, which I think is pretty definitively answered about halfway through. <laughs> he's real. Uh, yeah, he's he's real. Um, he is shot down by the critters. And I thought this was just like a three minute joke that they killed Santa Claus. Uh, not so. He becomes the main character of the movie for the rest of the movie. <laughs> because the because our actual main character, uh, let's call him Mark Polonia, is, uh, <laughs> so ineffectual at dealing with the chaos that, like, Santa comes in and he's like, you know what, I got this. It's Deus Ex Santina. And honestly, even less convincing than, like, the mall Santa, Grizzly Adams character. Like, he's kind of doing this, like, half Frank Oz Bobcat Goldthwait like comedy voice he's got the kind of cheap synthetic wig and beard that like has this like tinselly shine to it and it's like completely disconnected from his face like no effort into making this look like an actual Santa Claus they're not even doing like the the like you know just standard like ho 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 like he's like got like yeah he's doing a shtick here I think that it reminded me of if they had to have a Santa at a casino on a riverboat, and the that particular Santa had to be hired from the staff of that riverboat casino, um, and they that person uh, had never ever heard a recording of what Santa Claus was like, <laughs> and you just told him that he's old, um, so yeah, Santa comes in and with I. Bl- 
Is this like in camera effects? He f starts shooting uh, all of the feeders, all the feeders too, to death with a laser gun. I feel like they uh, always use like preloaded editing software effects. Yes, that's what I was saying. Like this, this feels like a default software because the the little light doesn't come out of the tip of the laser. It comes out of four corners in the frame. Absolutely incredible that like the average customer at a blockbuster could pick up a feeders movie <laughs> when like if you made this yourself at like any other time in the history of like backyard filmmaking, you couldn't even get your own parents to sit down and watch it. <laughs> I did have I I made um, a 20 minute like gore SFX reel with my buddy in uh, high school. And I could not get my dad to watch more than right. three minutes of it. <laughs> I can confirm that, that uh, Feeders is a movie you watch because you paid to watch it. And what else <laughs> are you going to do that night? But, you know, over time, that aesthetic has only gained in charm. Like, it's a warm feeling now. Yes. I The, the direct to VHS thing is a specific aesthetic. And I don't even just mean in the VHS movies. But I, in Spooktober, I came across a guy named Joe Meredith, who's this guy who makes DTV short gore movies, gore sci-fi movies. His most recent one is called Variant 2. Um, and I watched the first three, um, and they got better each one. But, like, the first time he shot it on, like, a DV cam, and, it, and it, you know, the special effects were kind of still in their, their very nascent stage. And then the second movie, he was like, oh, I need to shoot this on uh, SVHS. And it, all of a sudden, something clicked. And, like, there are shots that feel beautiful and, like, warm and touching. Even though it is a, a, a direct-to-video 30-minute horror uh, short where he gives his son, like, a biomechanic mutant arm and has him fight a zombie. <laughs> like, not a zombie, but, like, a space alien freak or whatever. All of a sudden, his swap from, like, a standard digital camera to, like, SVHS, all of a sudden, it was like, oh, my God, thank you, Joe. You nailed it. And then I watched more of his movies because of that. I guess my, like, modern version of this that I still pay attention to is Matt Farley and Charles Roxburgh, who did, like, Don't Let the River Beast Get You and Monsters, Marriage, and Murder in Manch Vegas. And more recently, stuff like Magic Spot, Slingshop Cops. <laughs> uh, it's, like, the kind of stuff... Like that you find more endearing the more you watch it because you feel like those are your friends after a while. Especially like someone who's been making movies for like 10, 15, 20 years. And I think the Polonia brothers are still out there doing stuff. I think there was like a Feeders 3 from like just a few years ago uh, that's out there and available to rent. I, I can't say I went that far into their lineage. But um, it's so down to earth that VHS style brings you back to like a home movies era that has been supplanted by cell phones in a way that's less personal. Um, yeah, it's it just, it's a very warm feeling. Yeah. I, it's not that I, it's not that I hate digital film and I think that you can never make a good movie on digital film. It's that I think that it requires um, a bit of, a bit of uh, cinema magic and a lot of love and technical expertise to make digital film look like something. And VHS has this like just warm inherent warmth that like, if your technical skill is not uh, up to snuff, um, it feels like the SVHS is sort of like, it's not quite apologizing for it, but it's saying like, let's set a baseline together. 
And then once you make that baseline together, you've made an agreement and then you're in this journey together. And I think that's beautiful. And in, in this case, too, they're specifically trying to make a movie that's funny. They're making a silly, goofy movie where Santa comes in and shoots everybody at the end. Right. And in the first feeders, it's like a alien invasion throwback to like 50s sci-fi stuff that they know they don't have the um, budget to make legitimate. So there is kind of like a tongue-in-cheek quality to it. But it's not like this movie where like they're adding fart noises whenever a kid's butt crosses the camera a little too long and like a bad framing choice. I forgot about that. I mean, that got a good laugh out of me. Also, like... <laughs> it forgets two or three times. Yeah, it happens multiple times. Like, anytime they, like, fuck up and, like, accidentally frame their child's butt, they <laughs> add in a fart noise to, like, get a good gag out of it. Uh, and Lord. I think the biggest laugh of the movie for me was actually the very final moment, which left me on a high note, which is Santa Claus, like you said, comes in and saves the day with, like, a ray gun and shoots all the aliens. Yes. And... What happens is the uh, main character is in disbelief. He's like, I'm an adult man. Santa Claus is not real to me. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> you, you cannot be doing this in front of my eyes. <laughs> so the final gag of the movie is he gets a present from Santa Claus. And you think, having seen every Christmas movie ever, that this miraculous gift left uh, in his name is the physical proof that Santa Claus actually does exist and that this was not all a dream that he actually did meet the real Santa Claus and he's going to open the gift and it's going to be this like sort of like physical confirmation of everything he's lived through. And instead he opens the box and a feeder jumps out at his face. (laughs) 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 So good. It is, it is truly incredible. Um, I absolutely love it. No, it's, it's a, it's, it's a big silly goofy movie. And if you don't laugh a little bit at the end, like, Hey, like, (laughs) You probably fell asleep. Um, but yeah, um, Brandon, that's the end of my list. That's the I don't have any other I don't have one more feeders left in the bag to jump out and butt your face. That was a good book ending, though, because that is like a very sweet antidote to the Christmas poison that is elves, which is an <laughs> evil movie that I love. <laughs> it is it is an evil movie. It is a movie where um <laughs> it is a movie that posits um you know maybe we can forgive our nazi occultist grandpa just a little <laughs> bit well i'm very glad we went through this journey yes thank you so much for going on this this uh disease journey with me and my diminutive little friends um elves gremlins uh puppets toys cookies <laughs> aliens um we just all had a, we had a blast coming over to the swamp um, you know, uh, little monsters, big episode. Um, but regardless, I had a blast uh, talking, talking with you, bud. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Swampies. I am a big, big baby. No, I ain't no Christmas elf. We are big babies because we can't be no one else. Mommy is a big, big baby. Daddy and brothers are too. Big sister is a hunky-chunky child in the bedroom's baby. Work all year to spread Christmas cheer to put toys upon your shelves. Elves are tiny with pointy little ears. They don't do it for the fame. They eat candy and coffee and the shoes are fluffy with names that are fun to say. Like Zoopy and Toopy and Forky and Mope. Flip and Fluff and Scream. Ripper and Pepper and Tyler and Cheddar and Bonkers and Busy and Scream. All you gotta do is all you gotta know when you hear the ho ho ho. Think 
Cause the elves and the work they put in Do a goo goo ga ga guitar solo yeah.